Knockback is brought to you by thousands of supporters on Patreon at patreon.com slash Stand. If you want to show your support for Knockback, as well as CLS's PlayStation podcast Sacred Symbols, the eclectic interview series Fireside Chats, and the YouTube gaming series SideQuest, please consider going to Patreon and pledging for a monthly amount that makes the most sense for you. Your Patreon support doesn't only ensure that CLS continues to produce the content you love, like Knockback, but you can get cool perks, too, depending on your level of support. You can get early access to each episode of Fireside Chats, Sacred Symbols, and Knockback, totally ad-free. You can vote for show topics and provide feedback to be read on air. You can listen to exclusive podcasts only available to patrons, and much more. Your support is essential if Colin's Last Stand is to continue well into the future, so please consider showing some love. Again, that's patreon.com slash Stand. Thank you for your kindness, generosity, and support. Without you, CLS wouldn't exist. But enough of that. On to the show. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Knockback. My name is Colin Moriarty. I'm joined as always by my brother, my neighbor, Dagan Moriarty. Dagan, thank you so much for joining me today. I like to think of ourselves as the cat bus of the podcasting world. Sure, sure. Because we're going to take them for a ride. Do, 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 do. Going to take you for a ride. Oh, God. I... <laughs> what were they thinking with I that? I have no idea. By the way, we're, ta- we're referring to Marvel vs. Capcom 2, the really famous fighting game from the turn of the century. In which, when you were on the stage select screen, it would play the same, like, six-second clip Ooh. over and over again. There was nothing else. It was literally, gonna take you for a ride. You would select your character so quickly I, <laughs> just to get away from it. But that's the only bad thing about the whole game. It's yeah, no, it is It is a massive... Ever. They really overlooked it. I hate when teams do that. The really easy things that you should nail in a game. Yeah. You do all the really complicated shit. Oh, it's brilliant, I was, that game. I was talking about God of War recently, the PS4 God of War that came out in 2018, and how they just nail everything. Yeah. And then just the menus and the maps suck, and the quick travel sucks. That I'm like, what sucks. the fuck, dude? You know? I'd be so mad if I was in charge of the other things that were right, and the, the people in charge of those particular aspects of the game. Yeah, you, you put the game Ugh. together beautifully, and then you have this awful <laughs> map system oh and God. stuff, and I'm like, well, all right. Well, <laughs> whatever makes you happy, I guess. Now, Dagan. For the uninitiated, Knockback is our retro and nostalgic podcast that we put up every week. You can get it a week early every episode, ad-free, by Patre- by going to patreon.com slash Stand, showing us a little bit of love. Doing so also allows you to submit your questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, and ideas. As we let you know of each topic of the show ahead of time, you guys submit tons of top- or tons of feedback rather for our topics, and we have lots of that for today, which is for our topic of the day, My Neighbor Totoro, the famous 1988 animated film. Absolutely. Now, Dagan, we're here in Santa Monica and we're recording wave eight of our show. This is your kind of litany, your list. You've put this one on the list. Not a huge surprise. Lots of really interesting insight I think you're going to have into this. We I just, we just watched it last night. We did. Now, I hadn't seen it in a really long time, and I was really shocked that it wasn't available to buy on any VOD mm-hmm. service. It wasn't mm-hmm. streaming on Netflix. It wasn't even available to buy on Amazon. It wasn't. I even went into like Vudu and shit I don't even use usually to like try to find it. <laughs> You know, and PlayStation Store and all that. So yeah. nowhere to be found. And I think a lot of it has to do, again, with Disney+, Plus, which they just announced recently that they're going to yes. kind of roll out their own stuff. Yep. But that doesn't roll out till November. So you'd think you want to get people, give people an option to, you know, check it out before uh, then. Disney is crazy with that kind of stuff. So you were very gracious enough to bring the DVD. I appreciate that. Of so course. it's fresh on our mind. Kind of similar to when we did the Akira episode last yeah. year. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. I'm excited to talk about it. Me too. But, but before we do dig in. We have an opening segment that we like to do for every wave. Typically, you are the maestro of these opening segments. I have stripped that away from you this time, and I'm going to do it. And that's really because I want you to be a participant in this instead of 
always having to plan everything. You never really, you're never surprised. I'm having fun with this. So what we're doing this time for openers is we're doing a segment that I've graciously and lovingly called It's About Time. And since Dagan <laughs> likes to dwell in the world of art, which we're going to experience today on today's episode of Knockback, mm -hmm. I figured that I would subject Dagan to my much more boring world of history and see if he can identify the years that certain things happen. But it's not like I'm not going to ask him about like, you know, deep, you know, like when when did the, the battle of Mechanicsville happened during the Civil War? We're not going to get like crazy. Uh, like OK. That. By the way, Dagan couldn't even identify the decade that the Civil War happened in, so I don't think he's going to be able to tell us yeah, when the Yeah, we're not going to reveal the stupidity. That was the worst one you did so far. Because what otherwise, you've were you been right on. I mean, you... you pretty, pretty tight. You were pretty good. Even pretty when I asked you about when Galileo saw the Jovian moons, you were pretty close on that. I may or may not have taken a half hour and studied some historical dates last night. Real oh, quick. interesting. I'm nervous. Well, you should be. <laughs> <laughs> so what's fun about this segment for those at home is that you guys can play at home if you'd like. Maybe you're driving in the car right now. Maybe you're a man. You're with your girlfriend. You guys are driving to a local eatery. You're listening to knockback as you're going. And so you have a little bit of a verbal game with each there other. There you go. I like you know? it. And see who, you know, see who's going to pay for lunch. Someone out oh. there's someone out there's driving to food right now while they're watching this. Absolutely. And they're listening to this and they, they don't watch this while you're driving. No. Not that there's anything to watch. No. So, Dagan, I have 10 more items to ask you about the years. We'll write them down. As okay. always, I'll give you a reprieve on your worst answer. Worst one. And then we'll go through and see what you, how you did. Okay. Is that all right with you? I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Hit that, me. That's fantastic. Hit, Hit me, me, Sergeant. Sergeant. There you go. Dagan, what year did Medicare start giving oh, out Jesus. free medical care to old people in the United States? Oh, my good Lord. Have mercy on my soul. I have no idea. I'm going to have to completely shot in the dark this whole yeah, thing. Yeah, please. I'm going to say... You would think something like that would be coming out of like a really prosperous era, like out of World War II. So I'll say 55. Okay. Okay. What year did Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451 get mm, published? That's a good question. One of our favorite books. That's a, that's a really good Certainly question. Certainly one of my favorites. Uh, but, he, but, but I really don't know. I know his heyday of writing, but I don't really know exactly when he would have published that. I'll say 58. Okay. What year did the first version of Snake Eyes come out? Mm. G.I. Joe action figure. The figure. Yep. <laughs> I'll say 83. Okay. What year did Madonna's Like a Prayer record come out? Oh, good Lord. Good good album, by the way. Excellent album. Life is a mystery. Oh, it's so good. What other songs are on that album? Not that that's a clue or anything. Well, uh, I have no idea. Yeah, I don't know either. I only know her singles. I don't presume to know. I celebrate her entire catalog. Oh, dude, that's interesting. <laughs> I celebrate the song Borderline probably oh. three to four times a week. Is that right? I love that song. I, like I that love one. that's my favorite Madonna song by far. Really? Yeah. I'm trying to think which my what's my favorite. Well, let me give you a date for this yeah, album. What's date. the album title again? Like a prayer. Like a prayer. I'm gonna go Very with controversial video. Yeah, that's right. I'll say eighty three. What year did Alex Trebek take over Jeopardy? Oh. Should I answer this in the form of a question? Please don't. Um, let me think. <laughs> what year did he take over Jeopardy? I'm going to say 93. Okay. What year did Darkwing Duck premiere? Nice. 90. What year did the Academy Award winning film starring Dustin Hoffman and Meryl Streep, Kramer vs. Kramer, come out? Oh, it's a great movie, dude. Based that, on a book. That movie breaks my heart. It's one of my favorite movies from that era. Is that right? Yep. Probably I, my favorite 70s movie. Is that right? I oh, I just gave oh, it away. Oh, my good Lord. Have mercy. 
I tricked you into that. See, you did. Yeah, it was brilliant. But that I don't know when in the gamesmanship. I don't know when in the seventies. I would have said seventy because I really like that movie. I only saw that movie maybe the first for the first time on TV, unfortunately. But I'm not sure how much they cut out or whatever. But in the probably five years ago, maybe. Oh, interesting. And that scene where he's making eggs for his son. Mm-hmm. Oh, dude, that movie breaks my heart. Seriously. Uh, I'll say, I'll say seventy six. Okay. By the way, that the son in, in my mind's eye kind of has kind of has Graydon hair. Clearly. Yeah, he does. Graydon just got his hair cut actually today. Uh, oh. They sent me a, a, a video. Interesting. But he, he did have, yeah, Graydon did have that kind of hair. Kramer versus Kramer is great. You know who, who showed me Kramer versus Kramer for the first time? No. Mrs. Parry. Is that right? That's right. That's right. Very interesting. She plays a much larger role in knockback than I would have ever assumed. Uh, I, she does. Maybe we'll have Mrs. Parry on one day. A Maybe she's floating guest. around Long Island somewhere. I don't know. I like it. She, by the way, was our English teacher when we were younger. High school English. Monica Lewinsky's scandal broke in what year? With it Bill broke. Clinton. Hmm, that's a good, really good one. That's a great one. I'll say eighty-nine. Okay. Oh wait, I'm thinking of uh, I'm thinking of something completely different. I'm thinking of something completely different. Can I re- re- change yeah, my answer? Yeah, you really need later to... on. I'll tell you what okay. I was really thinking of. The Monica Lewinsky scandal broke. I'll say 93. Okay. What was the last year the New York Yankees won the World Series? Last year they won the World Series was... Hold on. 2009? And finally, what year did VH1 premiere as a channel? Mm, I was just reading about this. I believe... mm, because I know a lot of the people that were associated with all that. Uh, VH1 premiered in 86, I want to say. Okay. So I asked you, actually, before we do that, let me see what, what you got most catastrophically wrong. What was the worst? What was my worst? Please don't be Darkwing Duck. That would be horrifying. Medicare. Your Medicare date is is off. What is off? The most. Okay. It's off by, did I ever tell you what, how many years you've been off in the past? Have I been mm. telling you that? That might give it away. So I'm not going to tell you that. Don't tell me that because okay. I have to... But the Medicare date, you said 1955. Yeah. That is the worst. Widest miss. My, widest miss. Yeah. Okay. So I get to have one reprieve, right? Yep. One reprieve. Aim small, miss small. I don't know which way to go with it. I'll say 1949. Okay. Well, that was an even worse answer. Oh, damn it. It's the other way. Medicare, you said 1955 and then revised your answer to 1949. Yeah. Medicare was passed in 1965 and went into effect in 1966 under Lyndon Johnson. Wow. It took that long? Social Security had already existed okay. since the 30s. That's what I was thinking. Okay. Winky, Fair winky. enough. Wink, wink. Fahrenheit 451, Ray Bradbury's excellent book about book burning. Mm-hmm. You said 1958. Mm. actually came out in 1953. Mm. So I'm pretty close. Pretty early. F- 50s were his heyday, of course. Snake Eyes V1, you said 1983. I thought that was the answer as well. I yep. forgot. There is a straight arm version of him from the original line, 1982. And I had When him. he was just known as Commando. Oh, that was... Oh, re- oh, he wasn't even called Snake Eyes? Well, because yet? you remember in the original run, it said like Commando, Hunter, or whatever, or like, it you know, Trail... And then it said title. code name and little words Yeah, underneath. it was like their... their rank Or their... Yeah, their rank or rank-ish whatever. Yeah, type yeah thing. exactly. Yeah. So that run has Snake Eyes as Commando. Okay. I didn't... I, I, I guess 82. I knew that. 82, wow. the first wow. run. Straight arm. Straight arm. Madonna's Like a Prayer. You said 1983. Way mm. too early. 1989 is when that came. Okay. 83 Madonna is more like borderline. Borderline. Madonna. And 
What when, when was like Papa Don't Preach? That I think is the mid eighties. That's like eighty five. Yeah, eighty four. I think so. Okay, Allie would know. Yeah, I was way early on that. Alex Trebek's Jeopardy. So as people for people that don't know, Jeopardy existed in the sixties and seventies and then went away, and it was actually a primetime show for a little while too. But Alex Trebek brought it back. Yeah, you said nineteen ninety three. Actually, nineteen eighty four. 84? 84. Consecutively Holy airing since 1984. And very sad, Alex Trebek recently announced he has, I think, pancreatic cancer. Oh, I didn't know that. Like, pretty, I want to say terminal, but pretty bad. Oh, that sucks. Yeah. Darkwing Duck. One of our favorite cartoons when we were growing up. Absolutely. You said 1990. Very close. 1991. 91. Okay. It only aired. Okay. Well, only original, car, only original episodes from 91 to 92. Yeah, very short-lived series. I knew it was on when I was in high school, but I wasn't sure if it was 10th grade, 11th grade. Yeah, I was obsessed with it. Kramer versus Kramer, the excellent movie. You said 1976. It's actually 1979. Okay. Pretty close. Not too bad. Monica Lewinsky's Scandal. You said 1993. It actually broke in 1998. The sexual conduct occurred between 95 and 97. Really? Yes. Oh, wow. Was that Because it was late after his second term. He wouldn't have gotten, Clinton would have gotten reelected. He got reelected in 96. You know what I was thinking of? I don't even know why I thought that. Oh, yeah. You said 1989 originally. You know what I was thinking of? I was, and I, this could be, I could be way off the mark here as well, but I was thinking of that whole Nancy Kerrigan. That's, okay. That's like 90. Early 90s? Four. Mid 90s? Yeah. Because I think it was the 94 Winter Olympics. Okay. That's what I was initially thinking of. That was the one in Norway. Actually, it happened in 93, I think, because it happened before the Olympics. So I think it was like the qualifiers. Wow. The Lewinsky scandal broke like after I was graduated from college. That's insane. Yeah. January of 98 Holy is when it broke. Shit. The last year the New York Yankees won the World Series. You said 2009. That's correct. Right. And VH1 premiered in, you said 1986. Actually, 1985, but pretty 85, close. 85, okay. So, nice. you're, you know, the, the entire idea, the entire impetus of this, for people that don't know that haven't listened to all the episodes so far, is that Aaron always compliments me on having this uncanny ability to just get in the wheel like in the the range of when anything happened or anything was produced or occurred yeah yeah i don't know why i don't know how like it's just i have a really weird sense for it and so dagan has it too because it's not about nailing the year you're not far off on almost any of them you know like even like fahrenheit 451 you're five years off on that i mean a lot of people would have no fucking idea when that happened If I went and asked, you know, a person on the street, when did the V1 snake eyes come out? They'd probably punch me in the face. <laughs> and then answer very incorrectly. I know. And then say, you know, 2007 or whatever. I'd be like, get it's out fun. of here. That's a fun face. little fun little sequence, man. I like that. I like it as well. Well, that's Drawing the entire it. idea. Now you get to play a little bit. I like it. But we're going to hear a lot from you on this episode, Dagan, because this is all about my neighbor Totoro. Yes. I think it would be most appropriate for us. Where? There it is. I was looking for my phone because I'm using Google Docs on it because the printer doesn't work, of course. <laughs> And I wanted to go through, I wanted to start, if I might, with just some comments from the audience, because I think that they just set it up nicely for us. I like it. You know, I'm very excited that we're talking about this, Kyle, because we get a lot of requests to do Studio Ghibli related topics. And I tell I usually tell people, uh, especially on Twitter and having a conversation with people, whether it's DM or just going back and forth, that. We are going to cover Studio Ghibli and we are going to break it out. You know, it's it makes the most sense to break it out by films. since so many of the films are just seminal discussions unto themselves. So, you know, I'm excited to be finally doing this. I think people will be happy about it. I hope. I think so, too. I hope. Remember, you can write into us on Patreon.com slash Collins Last Stand. If you support us over there, we appreciate it. It's your only way to interact with the show. We try to read as many of these as we can for each topic. Joshua McGee wrote into us and said, when we were when were you guys first exposed to this movie? Mm. 
I remember my mom bringing this movie home in the early 90s on VHS and not knowing what the hell Japanese animation was. I first saw this film on 20th Century Fox had its label on it before Disney partnered with Studio Ghibli. If you guys saw that version, I'm wondering if you noticed any differences between the two versions of the film. So we'll get into that a little bit later. We will. But I love Joshua McGee's original question here, which is when were you initially introduced to this film? Because 1988 is when it came out. I don't think it was localized until like 93 Right. Or so in the it was West. 93. I was reading a little bit about the controversy surrounding that because I don't think that they were pleased with that particular no. deal. No. Now, so talk to me a little bit about, you know, when you would discover this movie and really what it's all about. So, know? yeah, sure. Absolutely. Right. All right. So this is a good place to start. So for myself, I was first exposed to my neighbor Totoro specifically. Now, I had already known a little bit about Hay- Hayao Miyazaki because I was a fan of certain things that he did pre-Studio Ghibli, especially I had talked about on the show already, the movie that he directed pre-Ghibli, which was Lupin the Third, Castle of Cogliostro, um, which was a Lupin the Third adventure, you know, feature film. And I had known about Castle of Cagliastro because of the arcade, the Laserdisc arcade game that was based on the movie that Hayao Miyazaki, you know, famously can't stand so i had no i heard he'd been exposed to miyazaki a little bit through that and through some other things that he had worked on pre-ghibli that we'll we'll get into now i had first seen my neighbor totoro because you know as we explained in a previous episode our when anime was underground episode i would go i got really into oav anime in about in the late 80s and when i started you know and that was when anime was a really new thing in North America, outside of the thing, you know, of course, the things famously that we got on television, like Voltron and Robotech and Gotchaman, G-Force and things that we had already discussed on the show. Anime was a relatively new thing. And I had really gotten a friend of mine, Pat, in high school, 10th grade, had really gotten me into it. And we started to go to conventions every month, which were comic book conventions at like a Holiday Inn in Rockville Center on Long Island. And every month on a Sunday, we would go to the convention. There was a little area where, you know... They sold pirated anime, basically. And a guy who had all the VHS tapes that he dubbed from Laserdisc, I think he, you know, this guy Bruno, he would go to Japan every six months. He would get a bunch of stuff. He would dub everything to VHS. Then he would sell it for, you know, enormous profit, $30 for a VHS tape, you know, which I had explained whether it was a 20 minute episode of something or a feature film, everything was 30 bucks. And that's in in late 80s money. Late 80s. This is like an 88. So that's a lot. I mean, that's more than $50 today. So much money. I spent, we spent literally all our money on that, you know, because we were high school kids. And I had seen, now two ways I had seen my neighbor Totoro initially. One, it was on his list. He had, Bruno had a printed out list of all the stuff that he had, all the stuff that he sold. And, you know, again, a lot of it was OAV sort of series and some of it was feature films and stuff. So um, my neighbor Totoro and other Ghibli stuff Nausicaa at that time, Castle in the Sky, Laputa was out at that time. So uh, some of the earlier Top Craft slash Studio Ghibli features were on there. And then the fanzines, the early fanzines, especially Canadian anime fanzines like Animag, had features on all the anime, OAV stuff and features. So they had, that. you know, a lot of the magazines that I was picking up had different things about Studio Ghibli, which is how I, I started to learn some of the history of the studio and learn about who Hayao Miyazaki was, and also covering Totoro specifically. Like, I remember a really big, like, six-page article on the movie. You know, it was also, you got to remember, it was pre-dub. So a lot of it was just, like, 
buy the movie. You know, it was for fans that wanted to buy the movie. It was in Japanese. So for non-Japanese speaking audiences, it would cover what the movie was about, the premise, the characters, and all that kind of stuff. It was like a companion piece to the movie. So you could actually understand it. So that was the initial thing. And then, of course, you know, it was it was very popular very early because Studio, Studio Ghibli got really famous. They started to get really big, but Totoro specifically was a phenomenon in Japan almost instantly. So there were already a lot of products. The fanzines had spread, you know, illustrated spreads and posters and stuff like that. It was a Totoro was a really big deal from very early on in its in its life. So that was where I initially saw it. And I was trying to decide, Kyle, I must have seen it. I never owned it in Japanese. I never bought it. But the cool thing was that it was available back then to me. And there were so many things about it, so many write-ups and articles about it in the various magazines. And, you know, even in the ma- various, like, rags at that point like that were like really like fanzines like stapled together magazine type things had had coverage of it and i was trying to remember though did i have did i see it in that initial japanese version i don't remember i feel like i did but i might have just felt like that because i knew it so well just from reading so much about it i might not have seen it until it got dubbed initially that streamline 1993 dub that i think fox did and, you know, the cool thing was learning everything about Studio Ghibli leading up to leading up to Totoro, though. I learned about Nausicaa, which I had seen. I had seen Nausicaa later on. I never even saw Nausicaa. I think I saw Totoro, actually, before I saw Nausicaa. And then Castle in the Sky I saw later. But Miyazaki and, you know, Ghibli's previous incarnation, which was Topcraft, before it kind of spun off into Studio Ghibli, and we'll talk about how that all happened and how that went down and why it went down and all that kind of stuff. He did a lot of things. You know, Miyazaki was already kind of making his name as an animator, as a storyboard artist, as a manga artist, and as a director. And he was already kind of um, he w- his his career had already sort of ignited, at, you know, with directing things like like Lupin the Third. And he also did television, you know, specific television series. Like there was a famous um, Sherlock Hound, it was called, which is like a Sherlock Holmes serial with anthropomorphic animal characters, which was really cool, including Professor Moriarty. I think Professor Moriarty is like a wolf, anthropomorphic wolf, which was really cool. And, it, you know, it taught me a lot of the things of what it taught me really about Hayao Miyazaki before, you know, pre Ghibli and his people, his main lieutenants and everything pre Ghibli. And everything he worked on leading up to Ghibli and how it was formed and all that kind of stuff. So that was really neat. So I learned all that. So I got my history lesson even pre-Totoro, which is kind of cool. You know, because I knew, you know, it gives you a greater appreciation for now when Ghibli kicked off and started rolling along. Well, to qualify what you were saying, Dayton, because you were right, the movie came out in Japan theatrically April 16, 1988. Right. And actually, cumulatively, over all of its box office releases, including Western box office releases since then with the new dub and all of that, $42 $42 million at the box office, but I was really taken aback by uh, this figure, which is $1.5 billion in cumulative revenue, predicted revenue overall on licensing since since Totoro came <sighs> out. So $1.5 billion just on licensing. It's unbelievable. Of the various, you know, I'm sure stuffed animals and T-shirts and whatever. We were talking last night when we were watching it. I was surprised, although pleasantly surprised, I guess no video game even for this. No, for and this, there's, a, is, there's a story behind that because um, Hayao Miyazaki famously, they did, you know, when Ghibli was becoming a thing and they were sort of spinning off from the previous incarnation of the studio, Hayao Miyazaki wanted to do Nausicaa. And they told him, basically the money people told him, like, you're only going to do this movie 
if you make a successful manga of it first. Because of that traditional Japanese model of making films from already successful manga serials. And he did. He went back and did a manga of Nausicaa. It got very, you know, it garnered some success. And then he spun off and was able to get the funding to do Nausicaa based off that. Now, and he was new. This was one of his first things that he was not just directing or not just, you know, in charge of the animation or not just in charge of story. It was one of his, it was his thing. And... Of course, all the other media comes along with that. So they did video games for the then Japanese, you know, the various Japanese PCs back then. And I think they did three different Nausicaa games, and Miyazaki was very unhappy with the way those came out. And famously stated at that point, like, there'll never be another Studio Ghibli-related video game. If this is the way it's going to be, then forget it. Like, it's, it's out. You know, he put his foot down. He's famously, you know, Miyazaki is famously very opinionated, you know, you know, I would say difficult and a curmudgeon when it comes to various things, everything, like saying things about everything. He's very, he never hesitates to say what he feels. He's, he's pretty forthright, which for fame, famously for, for Japanese is actually pretty interesting because they're usually pretty reserved and polite, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, Not, definitely. That was what made uh, Inafune so interesting at Capcom, too, when he quit and he was willing to say whatever he wanted. Right. It's, it's very unusual. That's Opinionated what made it and vocal yeah. right. publicly and all that kind of stuff. Didn't but, work out quite as well for him as it worked out for, for <laughs> Miyazaki, maybe. But yeah. Yeah. But, st- you know, you got to give him credit for sticking to his guns and, you know, really pursuing his vision. Definitely. I respect that, you know, and we've talked a little bit about. This, I think, again, with the Calvin and Hobbes episode we did about selling out, not selling out and being true or being weird and being curmudgeonly and stuff. I can relate to it, although his product, we'll get into it later, I guess, when we talk, because I don't want to talk about him too deeply simply because we're going to talk about him so many other times in other episodes, sure, I suppose. But just his inability to even stay away, I find so funny. It's the exact opposite, actually, of Calvin and Hobbes, which is, what's the Calvin and Hobbes guy's name? I can't Bill Watterson. Bill Watterson, right. Yeah. So it's like the exact opposite in that way. Like he can't stay away, he can't stop, which yeah. is so funny. No. Now let's talk a little bit about what the movie's about because, well, uh, uh, let's read a few more questions and comments, concerns, sure. thoughts, and ideas from the audience first. But I'm going to throw this out there, Dagan, and, okay. and I'm, I'm curious what you think about it. I'll let you marinate on it while I read these out. Please. I don't think this movie's about anything. Like I, 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 this movie doesn't really have a plot Like from, from me, and I'm, I'm really interested to see it's not a bad movie. I no. liked. I like watching it. It was nice to watch. I think I last night watching it probably for the first time in a, you know twenty plus years probably. Yeah. I think I last saw it in like the nineties. So it was pretty much new to me. I remembered Akira much more when we watched that. I was like, okay, I kind of remember this. But at the same time, I was a little drawn drawn back by. I was like, well, like when the movie ended, I'm like, what the hell is the movie about? The movie's not about anything. But I think it's supposed to be deeper than that, and I think that's obvious. And so let's read some of these and and get through this and see what people have to say. Okay, sure. Alan DeMonk wrote in and said, My neighbor Totoro was my gateway into Miyazaki and Studio Ghibli, and even though I saw it in my early 20s, it manages to strike the nostalgia of when I was much younger. The subjects that are explored were surprising to me, coping with difficult times as a child, becoming more independent, and learning to accept the feelings of others, all tied together with that gorgeous animation. Look forward to hearing what Dagan to look forward to hearing Dagan wax on and on about the animation. It is seriously some of my favorite knockback content. Thank you, Alan, so much for that. Thanks, so I wanted Alan. to read that out because I, I think that it is more about a feeling than about a plot. I don't okay. know if that's an accurate thing for, for me to say, but it is. it does feel nostalgic. Yeah. And uh, I think that there's something to it because I had asked you when the movie took place. I had assumed just watching it, I'm like, is this like contemporary 80s Japan in a rural setting? There are certain things that give that away that that's not really true if you pay attention to it. You pointed out when she uses the really old phone. Yeah. 
and all of that. But I, I, I can't read the Japanese signs. There's like kind of indications around there that it might not be. And the vehicles kind of indicate that too. But I just thought it was like, okay, this is kind of like an agrarian, sure, off the grid kind of section of Japan, I guess. Yeah, you could be tricked into that rural because when you're in that rural setting, a very traditional farming setting, it could be, it could look more antiquated because of the things they have. They're not in the city or even the suburbs, you know. So I could understand totally being. And I think also, I think. There's probably a purposeful timelessness put in there that Miyazaki and his people sort of concentrate on as far as trying to make trying to not make that a distraction. Like it's not the point type right. of thing. Right. Well, that's interesting to me because I've always found it really trite. Horror films actually do this a lot more contemporary horror films and even horror video games where they have to make excuses for taking place in the past. Like Stranger Things, for instance. Right. Yeah. Stranger Things couldn't happen today. Like it just wouldn't work. No. You know, no, like it no, just no. couldn't happen. And so, you know, someone pointed that out to me. I'm like, why are so many things taking place in the past? And someone pointed out to me, it's like because the rules are so broken now with storytelling because of the of phones and cell phones and the Internet and text messaging. Like you can't have a horror film or a horror situation where you can just text people and shit. It doesn't make any sense. Or it's like really hard to work your way around that. Yes. I so agree. It, I hear, so I it either has to be like that. dystopian or it has to be like in the past. Right. Right. And since this movie was taken took place in the 80s, I found it that maybe it's a connective kind of thing to his own past and his own childhood, which I assume probably plays into it. But I was surprised even just reading the Wikipedia article as I was beginning my research of the of the movie that they authoritatively say it takes place in 1958. Yeah. Like it says it takes place in 1958. Right, right, right. But you had said that it's because of some calendars in the background that it either has to be like 52 or 58. But they yeah, don't something explicitly like that. say that it is. So I, I don't know. I found that rather an interesting point that I think is necessary to kind of take in with us. Chance McDaniel wrote into us and said, hi, guys, while Ponyo is, am I saying that right, Ponyo? Yep. Is my favorite Ghibli film. I do find Totoro to be a close second for me. The film is such a perfect encapsulation of so much of what childhood was for me. I grew up in the country surrounded by beautiful nature with my big brother, and I always lo was lost in the woods for hours on end. Even though this is a kid's film, I've always found it to be deeply enjoyable any time of life. It's one of those rare movies that manages to keep good kids, to keep... To be, I'm sorry, a good kids movie as well as a good film. Keep up the good work, guys. I can't wait to hear Dagan talk about every Miyazaki film. Oh, nice. So Thank there's you. that as well. Thank you. Well done. All right. So let's talk a little bit about the plot itself. Dagan, talk to me about this, the, these kids and the yeah. situation that they find themselves in. One of the things that I really enjoy about it is that they're female protagonists. I, I you know, I, again, I say that I qualify this over and over again that I'm not one of these social justice people. You guys know I'm not. But again, it's just an interesting perspective. There really are no males of the dad's a male, but there really are no males of consequence per se. Yeah. In the movie, because even Granny and others, the mom, and obviously the kind of asexual creatures, are you know, there's really only like one male, which is the dad and then the little boy as well. Yeah. Which is interesting. You know, it's funny. It's a funny place to start because I'll give you a little anecdote that I think is really hilarious about a good friend of mine, my friend Jack, who's actually my boss at work. He's one of the he's one of the vice presidents of the of sesame he's promoted but he's my team's boss my team being the anime the in-house animation team at sesame workshop now jack is an interesting figure he'll play a big part in knockback because not only is he a good friend of mine we also go way back in our careers he's older than me but he got you know jack is a japanese american his parents were born in japan he moved out to the united states when he was a kid and he, you know, he went to school out here in UCLA. He went to school for television production. He got his start at DIC, working on things like Inspector Gadget. And oh, did you say he might have worked on GI Joe or he something? He worked on. He did work that's on GI Joe. Cool, he worked man. on GI Joe. He did time at Sunbow. Oh, that's so cool. 
Um, I wonder if you know, he, he rubbed elbows with all my older heroes from TV animation, like Peter Chung and all those kind of guys. And, you know, eventually settled in New York and was very involved at Jumbo Pictures. He was the president of Jumbo Pictures, so he was there for the heyday of Doug. He was there at Nickelodeon. He was there for when, you know, when Disney swooped in and bought Jumbo and then did a new series of Doug on Disney. So he's been there for the, he's been, you know, he's a seminal figure in my life. And, but he has, he always told this interesting story. He has a, he sort of harbors a little resentment towards Studio Ghibli and Hayao Miyazaki because he's a huge manga. Jack's a huge manga and anime guy. But he harbors a little resentment because he went to a very exclusive Q&A with Miyazaki, like I want to say back in the early 90s. And Jack, of course, Jack is fluent in Japanese and everything like that. So it was a Q&A section of the thing, of the lecture. And Jack got up and asked Miyazaki, like said something about like, I forget what movie was out at that time. Might have been referring to Nausicaa at that time or something. But Jack said something to the effect of asking Miyazaki about, you know, why is it always it why does it always seem in your films that it's a female protagonist or a heroine? And Miyazaki got like really upset, like kind of got like visibly upset about it. it. Was like, that has nothing to do with anything. Like, and just completely like, you know, the sex of the of the hero has nothing to do with it. Any- like just really like shot him down in like a very mean-spirited way publicly. And I always thought that was very interesting. I mean, it speaks to everything you hear about Miyazaki, unfortunately, but it also kind of breaks my heart for Jack because, you know, he's for all us animation aficionados, he's kind of a hero. You know, Miyazaki's a hero. Yeah, that's why that's why I've said over and over again, you don't meet your heroes. You I would don't. never I would never dare try no. to meet some of the people that I respect. Most. I know it's crazy. Although it is interesting. Uh, maybe I'm just ignorant. You know, and I've not seen all of all of the uh, Studio Ghibli films, but yeah, all the ones I have seen have female protagonists. I never even Princess Mononoke being my favorite, but uh, I'm I'm shocked that I never really made that connection. And of course, it's relevant, and of course, it matters and comes from somewhere. So his answer sucks. He's that that's such bullshit. Like he of is course, of course, known for that. Yeah, what no, nonsense. of course, yeah, no, he is known for spinning things. Like whether he doesn't want to, if it's just something he doesn't want to talk about, or if he feels like it dispels the magic. Or whatever it is, he famously is very contrarian about everything. Like almost everything that you, even the most obvious thing like that, he'll just shoot it down and debunk it. Because he doesn't, I think he really just doesn't want to put it into words. I think he really feels like it takes the magic away. I mean, inherently, that's what I would think. Because why else would you act like that? But then don't go to a lecture where there's a Q&A. You yeah, know, it's or, a or just Or just sort of demure. You know, like just, you know, politely excuse yourself from answering that question yeah that's kind of the thing that i'm most you know confused I mean? about is i've had many public q a's and some people ask horrible questions or waste time and stuff but you never want to be rude you know rude to them oh Not he's that I'm Miyazaki, famous but. i mean uh, one more thing about miyazaki before we jump into it like he has famously said now anime you know historians and people that know anime really well will know osamu osamu tezuka is like the god considered the godfather of animation he invented all the famous anime series in like the 50s and 60s and he was considered like the godfather and miyazaki is astro boy astro boy simba all that kind of stuff and miyazaki has gone on to like on record being like that guy was shit like has said it (laughs) (laughs) like like i know everybody considers him the godfather that guy was complete shit you know, and there were contemporaries at a certain point, you know, Miyazaki being a little younger, but not that much, 
you know, Miyazaki was around when, you know, Tezuka was still working, you know? So like just really, just really got like, has like a mean bone in his body or something. I don't know what it is. With yeah, him. that's strange. It's kind of a little bit of a put off for me. But you know, Kyle, I could see why you would say this is a movie about nothing because, you know, or assuming that, you know, or just really realizing that there's no real plot or no real plot thread through the movie, because it's really just a movie to me about childhood and being a child and sort of, you know, that ambivalence between wonder and anxiety. I think there's a lot of ambivalence in in Ghibli's movies, but I think this specific movie, first of all, for me, one of the most flat-out endearing, whimsical, and charming movies. I mean, this animated, this is probably the movie I could think of the most. Not, not just animated fair, but any feature-length movie that embodied, no, no film embodies charm like this movie. It's just inherently very charming. And, you know, of course it has that, you know, what we would go on to learn about Studio Ghibli's films and being very whimsical. And there's a joy and there's a joyfulness in this movie that's sort of juxtaposed with the anxieties of being a kid. And I think two things sort of carry it through on a plot level, or at least the thing, there's two mag, you know, besides the visuals and besides how charming the film is and the interaction between the older sister and the younger sister and the way May sort of follows Sasuke around and does everything that she does and says everything she says and all those kind of joyful little and all, you know, all those thoughtful touches that are put into the animation and the setting and the backgrounds and all those, you know, unnecessary but joyful details that Miyazaki and his crew put into the film. Besides that, I think two main lines through the film are you're worried about the kids because you, you you know, you pretty, pretty quickly on in the movie find out that the mom is ill. And you're wondering what these creatures are. Are they imaginary? Are they real things? Are they forest, you know, spirits? What are these things? So I think those are the two threads. I think those are the two carrots that are pulling you through the movie and sort of work on that level. But, you know, I think I just think inherently it's just about it's a story about a family who moves out to the country to be closer to where, you know, their mom is in the hospital sick, obviously pretty seriously because she's in the hospital long term. And the family, especially the kids who the story centers on, the two young girls, and how they're dealing with it. You know, how they're, you know, A, just experiencing their childhood and experiencing the anxiety of their situation and how and what goes down. Yeah, yeah, I think that that makes sense. I mean, and I don't mean it. I guess it's inherently an insult to say it's not about anything. But Seinfeld's not about anything either. No, right? like, sure. No, I don't so, think it's an insult. Yeah, so I'm not trying to because I actually enjoy it. Like, I think it's a it's a good movie. I enjoy watching. It. I think it's a good length at 87 minutes. I think that's perfect. It doesn't drag. Like, right. we, we talked a lot about Akira. I think Akira drags a great deal. It does. Um, and also has a weird plot, but you kind of understand it more. So, yeah, I, I think it's I think it's really endearing, and I really find the little girls quite you know, adorable. Oh, me too. And, and and watching them. And you're right. The little flourishes in the animation, I think, are, it, there's this really just a lot of really cool stuff I was making mental note of that I just really love, like them walking on their knees in the house and stuff so like that. It's funny. like, it's so cute. There's a lot of really cute stuff like that. And, and as you said, like going the extra step with the animation was always, it's always really cool to see that from my perspective, like someone running down a path and then jumping, like they had to animate, like jumping over a puddle. Like you didn't really have to do that. It doesn't really matter but it, it it adds a sort of feeling to and a connection towards what you know the events absolutely and, and you know what's interesting about it too to me and I, I brought this up to you and i don't know if it's just the resolution of the movie we watched it on dvd so it's not in high definition right and i don't know if there are i assume there are high definition versions oh yeah this blu-ray yeah but 
I was a little taken aback by how beautiful the characters were and how I was using the word with you kinetic the animation was. It reminds me a lot of Akira in that in that sense too, which is it feels like there's a lot of fluidity and motion with the characters, but there's something different with Akira. I feel like Akira just looks better on its backgrounds. I feel like there's a lot of static. I felt really static in, in the movie. I felt like the backgrounds and I think it might have to do with the resolution, but I'm not sure. It's yeah. just on an HGTV or something. Right. But the backgrounds just looked kind of blurred out and st- and really s- like still to me. And there was like nothing in them with the exception of a few like creaks that they showed and stuff. There was like no, no animation in the backgrounds that gave them any kinetic nature, them right. any emotion. So it just felt like the like sometimes, not all the time, certainly. Yeah. But sometimes it felt like these kids were like it was like a cartoon. It, I, I kind of was unimmersive in that way. It pulls me. you out a little bit. Yeah, like I felt like there was there's definitely like a difference between there's some really beautiful shots that are still that are beautiful. There's just one shot of them like looking into a window where there's like an evergreen branch in front of it and stuff. And like that looks really good. But then yeah. there's these shots where they're running in the woods or in the hedgerows and stuff like that. And it just looks really still and it doesn't look quite right to me. Right. No, I you know, it's, it's interesting to juxtapose this film against Akira because first of all, they're contemporaries time wise. And, you know, as far as, you know, when they were produced and also they were both sort of traditionally, largely traditionally done, you know, hand drawn, inked and painted on cells, filmed under Oxbury cameras, traditional, you know, film cameras. So and and both of them at the tail end of that process, really right before the advent of digital ink and paint and computers and everything like that. But I think the difference is. Akira really struck, besides the settings being vastly different, you know, as far as being like inner city versus like in the, you know, future inner city past rural. Right. I mean, it couldn't be more opposite. But, you know, Akira was striving for a realism that, of course, it, you know, really captures and really holds up today, which says a lot because there's a lot of stuff that's come since. And whereas I think, you know, knowing Miyazaki and knowing his background and knowing his artistic approach. Totoro and a lot of the Ghibli pieces are, you know, it's a more, the backgrounds are much more painterly. They're more watercolor. It's, it's striving for an effect and a feel rather than an actual visual, you know, than an actual, you know, that's, that's the effect that's striving for really is that, you know, washed out watercolor. It's, it's beautiful. It makes the characters pop, but I could see it having the effect of pulling, especially in, t- in today's standards where there's so much to hold it up against. There's so many things that have come since new and old to hold this film up against. I could see it, you know, pulling you out, but I think you have to be able to see it as a style. You know, it's that it's a, it's almost like looking at an impressionistic painting, you know, where, where it's like a Monet is not, you know, it's a beautiful depiction of a pond, but it's not supposed to be photorealistic. You know, it's more it's more of a feeling that's supposed to be giving you, but not that that's going to work on everybody. Right. No, or it, appeal to everybody. Again, not necessarily a negative, but just something that I, I you noticed. And you're very observant. When it, you know, I really was noticing that. I noticed that watching Akira with you too. We don't get to watch too many of these things together, but that's a nice, really perk for me is watching this with you because for somebody who's not, you know, quote unquote, a visual artist, you're very observant when it comes to this thing. In fact, Colin, before we forget to, I don't know if we'll get a chance to mention it. Colin caught a couple of things in this film, but he caught a hair that was on the camera that was on one of the plates for one of the shots that I didn't even see. Yeah, it was, the, yeah it, was, it was. It was there. there it was in me. black and white. And yeah, also Granny's hand has too many fingers in one of the scenes, which I caught. Check that scene out at the it's end. It's very weird. Impre- it's like right at the end. Colin caught this. I never saw it before. Granny has six fingers. And it's when, yeah, she's embrace. It's sort of a medium shot where she's embracing May. 
Granny's embracing May and her hands over May's shoulders. Check it out. She has five fingers. She literally never saw it. I never saw that. So yeah, it's very. It was very weird. Well, thank to you. Kyle. He found he found that stuff out. Thank you. Now it, it you brought up something interesting. I thought which was its contemporary nature to Akira. Hmm. Carlos Streif wrote into us. Said this was the first Studio Ghibli Hayao Miyazaki film I had ever seen. It left a huge impression on me and is one of those movies that always puts a smile on my face whenever I watch it. Miyazaki also became one of the directors I respect the most and one of the few people that I think truly deserve being called a genius. Also, it's fun to think this came out the same year as other brilliant movies like Grave of the Fireflies, also a Ghibli film. Yeah. And Akira. What a great year for Japanese animation. That was Carlos? Yeah. Now, Carlos, if you don't know and if you guys don't know out there, this movie... My Neighbor Totoro and Grave of the Fireflies were released on a double bill in Japan. They were released at exactly the same time in theaters, so you could go in and watch both films. Totoro being directed by Hayao Miyazaki, and I believe Grave of the Fireflies was directed by Isihao Takahata, which is another Studio Ghibli director and Miyazaki's longtime friend and colleague, even pre-Ghibli. So they released their films together on a double bill, and tonally, have you seen Grave of the Fireflies? I don't Kyle? think so. I might have, but I don't think so. Basically a story about two kids post the bombing of... Oh, yeah, I've seen Forgive that. me if I don't know if it's Hiroshima or Nagasaki. I, I have I'm seen not that. Sure, yeah, I yeah. believe it's Nagasaki. And I think nuclear... I might have actually seen that in like a history class. Did you really? I think so. In it's college. heartbreaking. I think I actually really think film. I saw that in a college like Japanese war class or something very important but first of all i think that whole issue is a very important thing to sort of study and sort of immerse yourself in and think about there's a lot of anxiety in japanese culture over like oh my generational anxiety over that still absolutely i can you imagine i mean you think of that you think about it even from a pop culture media you know stance of what's come out of that things like godzilla and stuff like that you know where that that was obviously based on the feelings of everything that happened. I mean, it, it's there's so much to talk about there. I mean, that could be a separate topic, and I, I don't want to come down one way or the other to you guys on. I think that's something everybody needs yeah, to well, think about. I was going to ask. I was going to try to nail you down on it. You are? Well, just on the sense of like, I've always really been fascinated by someone. Actually, I have some German friends, and one of them emailed me recently because I was talking to him about it, like what the word is. There's a, a German word for really German guilt, like the guilt from world war ii sure and then there's like the this whole thing with japan like the japanese a similar not really a guilt but like well, we did all this shit and kind of brought like brought this upon ourselves in some way whether or not it's deserved or not right but i was always fascinated by like what you thought about because so much so much comes out of the nuclear bombings sure. right and so much comes at like fiction and so much feel like how do you feel about that entire episode I, I'll, I'll answer you yeah because i'm I've, i actually made a video about it and i'm really of the mind that that was the best possible outcome. I remember that video. Yeah, considering considering the reality of the situation, that was the best possible outcome the Japanese could have possibly hoped for was getting nuclear bombs dropped on them, as opposed to having the Russians and then the United Americans invading the country. Right, and the slaughter that could have ensued. Millions would have done, right? right. As opposed to, you know, 200,000 or so, not even. Now, I'm I, not saying that that's a fucking lot of people. But, I totally understand. You know what I mean? So, I yeah. totally understand that point. But, you know, I always think back to this, and it's sort of a hard, I'm, you know, I'm being very candid with you guys right now. Thinking back to an argument I had with somebody I loved dearly, who I don't know if I ever told you about this, Kyle, and probably one of the only arguments I ever had with this person, who is my best friend, PJ, comes up on the show, his mom, who I, you know, Mrs. Williams, who I always called Mrs. Peach. Rest in peace. She Rest in peace. She passed passed. away a couple years ago. And she was like, not only, not only my best friend's mom, but sort of my completely my surrogate, like second, you know, I love my my own mother so much, but she was really my second mom growing up. And she was also a dear friend of mine. Like I considered her like one of my closest friends. 
and she was just one of the coolest people, one of the coolest and kindest people. But, you know, she was, we had different politics in general. And I remember one night we were all watching, you know, and Mr. Williams too, shout out to Mr. Williams too. He's all, he's awesome, but he's much less opinionated than PJ's mom was. Like she would enter into it. We never got into arguments, her and I, but she would, you know, she was very opinionated. She was very Italian, very brash, you know, Brooklyn born woman. You know, we knew a lot of people like that. Mom, you know, very much reminded me of mom, you know, but super kind hearted and super wonderful. But one night they were watching a documentary on the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And I was over, you know, we were PJ and I were probably, I guess I was a little older. I was out of high school, but I might not have gone to college yet. And, you know, it was a typical thing. I was staying over PJ's for the weekend. We had probably just got back from skateboarding, chilling out. She probably made us a little dinner. We're just sitting around the TV and we ended up getting into an argument about it. You know, her being like, well, you know, what else could we do? Like they deserved it. And me being like, that's, it, did, it doesn't matter. Like, that's one of the most heinous acts. Like, we made a mis- Like, basically saying, like, we fucked up. Like, there was... that. That's... there's. It's inexcusable. And her being of the complete opposite mind. And really getting into it over it. You know, like, to the point of, like, both of us getting really upset. But I still feel the same way. And I, I think I, I still feel the same way because... Although I understand it in a historical context. And I really do try... When, I, when I'm talking about an issue no matter what my politics are, no matter what my heart is or whatever, I really do try to, and I'm not patting myself on the back, but I really do try to circle an issue. I really try to examine it from all perspectives. It's very important to me to be open-minded. And I'm not saying I'm always open-minded or I don't have biases. I'm like anybody else. I have biases. I have prejudices and stuff like that when it comes to topics. But I do try to circle it. You know, is it very hard for me to circle what the, you know, for instance, I'm not going to get into it right now, but is it very hard for me to circle and be open-minded about something that's completely un, unimaginable to me, like the KKK? Yes. I can't, it's a very hard topic for me to circle. I just think it's fucking despicable. Right, of course. But I try, you know what I mean? So with yeah, something, I understand like, what you mean. Of course. something like the bombings, I've always tried to, you know, and I, I, of course, I have to preface this by saying I know much more, his, much less historically than somebody like Colin does, who's an expert in history. But I try to get all the facts and learn about it. And I understand the historical context of Japan. And e- even if you think back all the way to Pearl Harbor and dragging us into the war and everything like that, there's a lot. You know, Japan was, you know, they were doing some egregious shit. There's no question about that. But it didn't, for me, still to this day, and I think a lot of it for me is that there was there was just too many innocent people involved. And even if you didn't want to call adults innocent, which of course there were innocent adults, there you you can't. There was chil- there was children. You know what I mean? You can't. For me, that automatically, even without even examining it from without without examining it with the children, I think would still be difficult for me to understand it. You put the children into the equation, and it's just like to me, it's just like no. There had to be whatever other way had to be done just just to avoid that. Sure. You know, that's how I personally feel. Yeah, I mean, that's a totally valid, you know, viewpoint. But when you see something like Grave of the Fireflies, it's like, oh, you know, it's just like such a hard. You just dragged right back into like, you know, putting yourself in that position or being alive during that time. Not even being a a Japanese civilian, but just being an American, knowing what we were going to do and knowing what we had done and you know what I mean? That's very, must've been very difficult. I've I, one thing 
one positive I could, I, you know, we talked about this before, Kyle, but one positive that I think is like one of the most marvelous things I could think of in life, in contemporary life, is our relationship with Japan now. The fact that we could have come so far. I mean, I even think back to like when I was younger in the 70s and 80s and it not, you know, how far we had come even to that point, which we're talking about 30, 40 years ago, you know. But to come that far now, 2019, and to have the relationship that we have with them and to be able to, not that there's not underlying feelings, maybe there is and maybe there isn't between certain parties. And I know, you know, World War II veterans on both sides, you know, had to deal with, certainly had to deal with their issues with this. But the fact that we could, that there could be water under the bridge and that we could move on and, and forge a friendship through that is just I mean, no, that's the type of thing in life, not to be hokey, but that's the type of thing in life that gives you hope. I mean, if you could forge your friendship after that, you know what I mean? That's just, it's marvelous. Yeah, it's, marvelous. It, it's excellent. It's excellent. We threaded the needle so nicely with Japan and with Western Europe, having destroyed the countries and then given them all the money basically necessary to build them back up again and kind of foster friendship and not keep smoldering anger sure. alive for generations which is typically what i mean that's what led to world war ii to begin with was just not extinguishing it after world war one so it's a really right. you know interesting story i i totally accept that i've had a drag out you know i don't want to say fights because I, I i but you know conversations about about the bombings and we can save it for grave of the fireflies because i think it'll be more relevant at that point but i, I that's interesting i didn't know that about you yeah. So. Oh, you never knew that. Well, yeah. And so it always, that topic always really speaks to my heart because of, you know, engaging into it. And I'm not an argumentative person. I don't like to argue and I don't really like confrontation. But and you know what? And, and people out there are starting to know me now. You know, our knockback community and listeners are starting to know me now. Like I'm not the type to wear my heart on my sleeve when it comes to my politics and stuff like that. In fact, a lot of you guys don't even know very much about me when it comes to that. Well, you're probably trying. You're starting to ascertain things. But you know, the fact that I had this knockdown drag out with somebody who I loved dearly, like one of my one of the people I love most in this world and will always love most in this world. The fact that I had to stand my ground and did stand my ground, because a lot of times I would just if a lesser thing, you know, something that was lesser part of my heart. Or if I had, you know, I would just step back and be like, all right, you win. like I'm not going to get into this with you. Like, let's I'll just respect your opinion. You know, the fact that it was an engagement, you know, that speaks to how I feel, you know, how strongly I felt about it, you know, and feel about it. Yeah, you know, no, it's super one of those things. It's super interesting. I think that there for that particular argument, there are just valid things to say on both sides. There are plenty of I could totally outwit myself in getting out of that argument. If I want the Soviets were going to invade, we could have dropped the bomb in Tokyo Bay and showed them what it could do. We could have right. done. There's a million different things. Right? right, right, right. But what I always wonder about is how I would have felt. And you can ask yourself this question. It might be valuable. It might not be. But yeah, I think yeah. the most effective thing to do is to ask yourself how you would have felt in the fall of 1945 or in the spring of 1946 when you were landing in Japan to fight them. Would Knowing you? Would that. you? Would you have? Would you have preferred that those bombs uh, right. force them to surrender? Oh, dude. Or would you or have rather? That... Or would you have rather probably, first of all, probably killed a shit ton of them before you yourself were killed? Right. You know, uh, knowing they were going to fight to a man. Yeah, they had. They were going. I don't know the Japanese terminology. I'm. I don't. I want to say I'm an expert on this. I'm not. But I'm very well read on World War II, as as I think the audience knows. Right. Of course. They had the order. I think it was something like what was it like a hundred million souls for the empire or the emperor or something like that. It was some. There was some <laughs> Japanese saying where they're like, "We're fucking going down." That's horrifying. You know. Sharpen your sticks, do whatever it is you have to do, get right. your shovels and your Pitch hose and all that, you know, like the Marines are going to land here and the army's going to land here and we're fighting them. 
Can you yeah. imagine? And can you imagine not only being those soldiers, Kyle, but being the parents of those soldiers as a parent right. now? Right. So, so exactly. So that's oh, what I think about. Easy. I'm like, you know what? It's far from easy. Yeah. Kids died. Infants died. People, old people died. The infirm died. We killed Americans with the bombs that were imprisoned in the cities. Right. Like we there was collateral that our own people died in the bombing, sure. which is weird. Sure. Not that, you know, we killed that many of them. That's that's certainly true. It's also true to note that the a lot of children were sent to the countryside a long time ago. And that happened in Germany as well. But it's there's no doubt that people die. But I always try to look at it through that lens. Like the bombs killed a couple hundred thousand people and extinguished a bunch of life immediately and caused horrible, you know, radiation sickness and all that kind of stuff. Or we could have killed potentially millions of them with guns and bayonets and all that on the beaches of J Japan. And and they would have slaughtered hundreds of thousands of us. Right. And and how good were those bombings? And then. The and then well FDR had died by then, but then Truman would have had to have come to the American people or later on when there's like investigations and stuff and been like we had the bombs we didn't use them, right? And, and that people, was Mrs. Not that it was as as articulate because she didn't know you know she wasn't as educated as you, but that was her argument. That was Mrs. Williams' argument. You know that those exact things to it. You know not to a not to a word, but in general, you know. So it's not easy. It's not an easy thing, especially this, you know, and also we're, cir we're circling back from a modern perspective, which isn't fair because, you know, everything, you know, hindsight is always, you know, 100 percent. Yeah. Historical relativism is 2020 in retrospect. But any historian will tell you that relativism is incredibly but it's, important. It's a cool part of the, you know, it's something interesting to talk about and have a, you know, a, you know, a polite conversation and a respectful conversation about just like anything else. No, I, I absolutely agree. And I think it's relevant and and you know, germane to our conversation about Totoro, because having taken place in 1958, the girls were, you know, May is four years old. I don't think they ever say, or maybe they do how old Sasuke is. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not, you know, she, she always struck like 10. me as about 10 or 11. And yeah, they say, they do say May is four explicitly. They say that. Yeah. So the girls were born in the fifties. Maybe Sasuke was born in like the late forties, but Tatsuo, her dad, there's a decent chance that he either, was in the war or certainly like a teenager during the war. Yeah. So there and and Granny clearly was a contemporary to the war. So there is a lot. I, I'm really interested in that as well. Just like the farm life, the agrarian life. Everyone's kind of returning to normal in parts of Japan that you don't. I don't know if they ever really insinuate where it takes place. Hokkaido or whatever. I know that there was some argument. I had read something where there was even an argument about where it was going to take place in Japan based on like the color of the soil and shit. Yeah, yeah. I think they say it's like a Tokyo suburb called Saitama, but or it's based on the rural Tokyo suburb or actually more rural than the suburb of, of Saitama. But I'm not. And I think, yeah, I think they had to base that on not only the topographical features the natural features like the soil and the tree trees and the tree line and how hilly it was and stuff but on specific buildings like that hospital which was supposedly there was a hospital that specialized in like spinal tuberculosis in that area yeah that's what i was gonna say how do we they also in the movie never say what what's wrong with the mom right? no they don't and the only reason they don't say it and i always wondered even as a even as a younger guy i always wondered like and i still i want to ask you this Kyle. like what do you think just watching the whole movie now and it being so fresh in your mind what do you think the point of not saying it is what do you think the the point of not being explicit about it is? Yeah, I don't know that they're really. I don't know that why they wouldn't. It seemed to me the, the weird thing about it, the the reason I think that the the story is a little confusing is because it makes it seem like she's terminal, or like it insinuates that. But then at the very end, it makes it seem like it's not that way at all. Like yeah. they're worried over nothing. And again, to that that anxiety that you brought up earlier, the girls have this anxiety and this tension right over their mom being sick and sure. the scariness of it and and being disappointed in her prognosis in the past, but.
I don't know why you wouldn't say it. it's I don't like intentionally vague shit. I like mysterious shit. Right. Right. But I don't like when you're vague in order to create mystery. I think that's a kind of a different thing. Yeah. Right? In other words, like it's mysterious, like, you know, the numbers in Lost are really mysterious, like four, eight, 15, 16, 23, 42, whatever they are. That's that's mysterious, but it's not vague. Right. They're there. Right. We don't right, know what right. they mean. So like. Uh, I'm a little yeah I was a little disappointed in that especially because it brings you for a full loop it makes it like the movie almost ends up being for naught in a way because it insinuates at least and I don't know if it's really true or if that's what it's intended but it, it insinuates that everything's fine everything's fine she's fine she's coming home yeah it ends on a high note right which is although, unusual although yeah. she doesn't come home well because it know. says that she oh so you know she's that in the manga come, or whatever she's gonna yeah she's gonna come home because it says like oh it really was because the anxiety over it is that like she Last time they said she had a cold and it kept her in the hospital, but she never came home. So right. they say that again and they insinuate it's lying. But then she says, no, I really do have a cold and says it to the dad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, you know, it's funny, Kyle. It worked for me on a level of not knowing for a little while because I had heard whisperings, sort of conspiracy theories or, you know, different things, you know, different urban legends, as it were, of that actually the mom had some sort of mental disorder whether it was depression or anxiety or PTSD, which wasn't really a thing back then or a diagnosed thing back then necessarily. And that was always interesting to me. Like the mom, yeah, the, you know, the, from the little girl's perspective, no one's really telling them what's wrong. The mom is sick, quote unquote, but mom is having problems. You know, mom is having mental issues. And, but I don't think that's true. What I found out later on was two things. One, the novelization says, now the novelization I believe came after the film. The novelization form of the movie says that she is sick with tuberculosis. And apparently, Hayao Miyazaki, when he was a boy, his mom was sick, really sick, for like seven years with spinal tuberculosis. And half of that being time spent in the hospital, the other half of that being bedridden at home. So he basically saw his mom in bed for like seven years with spinal tuberculosis. So this is sort of something that's sort of semi at least semi-autobiographical from Miyazaki's account and but I think it's you know I think it's just that vehicle in the film to juxtapose again juxtapose all the wonder and the excitement you know all the wonder and excitement of the girls being in a new place exploring finding these creatures using their imagination you know being having you know having fun in this new environment juxtaposed with the worry of having you know losing a parent which is you know, potentially losing a parent, which is the most, I mean, you remember that feeling of being a kid. I mean, that's still something that horrifies you as an adult. Yeah, it's hard. I couldn't even, I really can't even imagine. It's the most frightening thing as a kid. You know, that is literally the most frightening thing as being a child. So I always love that juxtaposition and that sort of ambivalence. Somebody wrote a really fascinating article that I read like a, a year or two ago about ambivalence in just Ghibli films in general. And it's true. It's a, it's a, it's a theme of bittersweet. And I think that's a theme, you know, it's a, that bittersweet, you know, sort of theme is carried out through this, through a lot of Ghibli films, but I, I think of Spirited Away also as a marked one. And maybe to some extent, Howl's Moving Castle, which is another favorite of mine, but this one, especially you could see that. And that's what makes it, I think that's what makes it so endearing. It's funny too, because Nino Cooney is about a boy losing his mom. Right. That's right. And going to try to find her. That's right. Yeah. And again, you know, they they were the creative, the visual creative behind that. Yeah, so I I assume that they had some sort of um, some sort of plot input. You would assume they probably created all the characters and stuff. But everybody praises this movie for being anti Disney and the fact that the mom is not actually killed. 
you know, because Disney also played up on, you know, whether, you know, it's never talked about and Walt never talked about it. But that was a huge thing in Disney films to the point where I'm not even sure slyly if Walt even realized what he was doing, you know, but that stuff is so powerful. You think of Bambi, you think of so many Disney things, you know, that's such a powerful thing. I mean, you, you want to speak to kids, you know, that you're, you're playing on their greatest fear. Yeah, it is very interesting. It is fascinating. And, you know, it's funny in seeing her when I found out or when we figured out or when I concluded or we concluded that the movie had taken place in the past. I was like, is she talking about the World War Two anxiety? I'm like, she doesn't have radiation poisoning because it's way too late. But does she have some sort of complication or cancer from that? Is that does that also have something to do with it? So it's interesting, the, tuber- the tuberculosis yeah. Uh, angle. Yeah. I will say I did note that she had a gigantic forehead, which I was she, a little perplexed by. She definitely did. A huge forehead. She does. But that's fine. She does indeed. To each, to each his own, to each her own. I'm, I'm, I wish her well. Now, another thing that uh, I, I was curious about, like, is that did any of this even, this might have been concluded in the movie, maybe I just am not sharp enough to see it, but like, did it happen? Like, did these, like, obviously, like, who, no one can see these creatures, right? No. Uh, you, you know that the adults can't see them. Right. But so does it, is it indicative that like, is it a dream? Is, did it happen? Like, did anyone ever can, what, what happens with those creatures like this? It's just weird. I don't really get it. That, that part of it. The only definitive thing. I mean, I th- again, I think that's the thing that carries you through the movie because you're waiting for an answer. Like, what is going on with these Totoros? What is going on with the giant Totoro? What is going on with the soot sprites? What is going on with the cat bus? Like, what is this? Like, is, is, is this going to be summed up for us? And the only thing I could find, the only, besides people writing and conjecturing, which is not, doesn't really mean much to me because I could do that too. Not to be mean, but. No, yeah. of course. But the only thing I could find is Miyazaki famously cryptically saying this exact quote Kyle Totoro is not a spirit he's only an animal I believe he lives on acorns he's supposedly the forest keeper but that's only a half-baked idea a rough approximation that's it that's all he said that's all he said about your story and the character of May was modeled on Miyazaki's niece that's all we get that's all we get now there's other conspiracy theories about there was a famous murder serial murder case in the 60s in Japan around this same area that supposedly this movie is based in the same setting. They, I think they call it the Saitama case which, where a little girl was murdered, you know, terrible, you know, murdered and desecrated and everything like that. And they were saying it's loosely based on that. But Studio Ghibli has actually come out and made a statement that has nothing to do with that. You know, an official statement has this has nothing to do with that. So you don't know. I mean, Miyazaki, you know, like a lot of magicians, right? Like a lot of famous, you know, geniuses. He's just either, you know, either he's just cursed and we're cursed with his vagueness or he's doing it on purpose. Yeah, you have to assume it's well, maybe the answer, too, is that there is no answer. Like they don't know. But I find it hard to believe that you create something like this without having some sort of plot motivation and some sort of idea of who the characters are and, you know, have some sort of Bible or at least some sort of idea of who everyone is, because I, I can't really relate to that. I, I would I would relate to a crypticism and uh, and all of that if I had just released something or in the years after it, if people wanted to conjecture and stuff. But eventually I'd be really probably happy to be like, this is what it means. This is what we thought. This is how it happened. Like right. after a while, like give people answers, like let people spin for a little while. You know, what? that's a great point. Yeah. Let there be like a statute of limitations on it for a little while. Let people stew on it. Have a conversation. That's fun. But 15, you know, make a, you know, this is arbitrary, but, you know, whatever it is, 15 years after the movie's released, that's come out 
people would really appreciate that. People would look forward to that. And 15 years goes fast. You know, I'll tell you a little bit about this incident, Kyle, because you might be interested in this. So this murder case was May 1st, 1963. I tried to research this as best I could, so forgive me if I'm getting some of the facts wrong. But to the best of my knowledge, Japan, May 1st, 1963, in Sayama City, this whole thing is, you know, termed called the Sayama Incident. A man kidnapped, raped, and murdered a 16-year-old high school girl, okay? both Now, both girls' names in the movie mean May. Sosuke supposedly means May in Japanese or refers to May in Japanese. And May, the English translation of May, May is May, right? Now, this is located in the Siam Hills, which was inspired by Tokorosawa City, which is next to Sayama City where the murder took place. Okay, so these are all the things that people have said. Okay, these this is the sort of conspiracy theory. May's sandal is found, although it doesn't turn out to be May's sandal in the movie, but supposedly that's how they that was one of the clues that they found in real that the police found in real life in the murder incident. And in Japan, in, you know, sort of legend or in, you know, popular ancient belief seeing those soot sprites or any kind of sprites means that you're either dead or close to death. Okay. And now does this mean that the mom is actually dying and that's why the girls are seeing it? Is this what means somebody's going to be murdered? Now in the real life incident as well was a younger girl and her older sister. The younger girl was actually 16 years old, not four, but supposedly after the little sister dies in real life, this is tragic a tragic detail, but supposedly after the younger sister dies in real life during this thing, the older sister eventually committed suicide over it, which is terrible. But again, it was supposedly in this real life thing that this movie may or may not be based on. There were, it was a story about two sisters. Now again, studio Ghibli has actually this, this sort of conspiracy theory got so big and so popular that studio Ghibli felt the need to release an official statement debunking the entire thing. I wish I could find their statement, but I can't. But I will say that in Studio Ghibli's defense, and I I can't come down one way or the other definitively because I don't know, but I think when you have something, I really thought a lot about this in in the lead up for doing the show with you, Kyle. When you have something that is seemingly this cute and whimsical and seemingly innocent and just fun – and just seemingly 100% pure, I think inherently people go in and try to find the darkness in it. I think that's just a human nature thing. You know, I think that people will go into peanuts and do this or, you know, whatever it is, you know, like they would go in and say, like, what's the darkness behind Charlie Brown? You right, know? right. Because that's fun. Because that's fun. <laughs> right. I think that's it is. fun it's awesome. too. Of course. You have something that's like exceedingly light and you just try to find the darkness. Of course. In it. I really think that's just human nature. But it's interesting, you know, it it does give birth to thought. You know, certainly it does give, it gives you pause. It is kind of strange. It's kind of strange that it seems like, can it really be nothing? Could this really have bloomed completely out of the imagination of a man? You know, it's, it's, it's a very, you know, this sort of plotless, threadless story about just two girls with a sick mom, you know, who knows, you know? So I thought that was interesting. No, it's super interesting. And I feel like, that's those connective tissues or whatever that connective tissue to the to the plot in in the real world to the plot in the movie that seems like a logical like that seems like pretty clever yeah you know, like I, I, agree. I can see all of that right 
some of the things seem a little too coincidental, having a girl named May and then the name her older sister's translates to May, the sandal. Right. I mean, come. that's a little weird. The setting. The setting. The anxiety of someone going missing. But even May going missing seems arbitrary. Like, I don't really understand, like, why anything's happening. That's that's the I guess my one major thing is where I was like, it's it really just seems like a glimpse in the day of the life, like which is cool. Right. I, I like that. I think that that's what makes it relatable and nostalgic. And I think that, like, maybe not having a plot is, is something that's valuable. But I don't know. Maybe they're just lying because that seems like it's a pretty that doesn't seem so conspiratorial to me. Right. It seems like almost like a thing, especially now, like you think about, like, it's international, not just being enormously popular and for a long time now being enormously popular in Japan, but with its international status and just being a worldwide recognizable iconic thing now. And knowing that Studio Ghibli has had its financial ups and downs in the last 15 years where it's, you know, there was talk about it closing for a while. So to know that they would step in and make a statement doesn't seem surprising either, you know, especially when they're protecting one of their one of their most you know, profitable IPs, maybe their most profitable IP pound for pound. I mean, you go to Disney, we went to Epcot in Japan, you know, Epcot in Japan a few years ago, and, you know, they have the Japanese bookstores there and it's all like, it's all Studio Ghibli. It's all, you know, My Neighbor Totoro. I mean, this this is not, you know, my 1988 OAV world of mysterious anime in one fanzine. This is this is pop culture now. This is Mickey Mouse. Right, right. You know, so. What do you make of the animation styles and the character designs and stuff of, of not only the creatures, but oh, the I'm people? I'm, I'm curious that. what you what you make of all of them. Because I, I, quite, I find it quite, the animation, of course, is quite endearing, but I like Totoro's design quite, quite a lot. He's, it's timeless. It's so appealing. But you know what, Kyle? I love talking about Studio Ghibli when it comes to anime because Studio Ghibli was my first realization. You think of anime and you think of all the visual sort of cues that make an anime, right? The pointy, shiny hair, the giant eyes. Everything's very linear and graphic. You know, you think of very pushed features like, you know, giant swords and giant guns and just, you know, everything is very meticulously designed and, you know, the girls have very long legs. And you think of all the cues that make anime a style and all the things that we love, that anime fans love, right? Ghibli was the first thing. It's certainly not the last thing. It didn't end there, but obviously there's so many beautiful design styles within the world of anime now. But Ghibli was the first thing I recognize as a guy of my generation, as a kid, you know, a fan of anime in the in the 80s, even this, you know, going that far back, where I realize it's it's recognized so fascinating to me because Ghibli's work, Miyazaki's work, is so recognizable as anime, but it's different. There's a warmth to it. You know, and I say all of this, I have to preface this by saying, I say all of this being a full fan of many different anime styles. I love anime in general. You know, this isn't to this isn't to put down other styles of anime, which I love. But Studio Ghibli's work has and Miyazaki's work has a warmth to it. And it has a roundness to it. And it has an immediately you you could immediately identify Studio Ghibli's work just through the various stylistic cues. This is a little bit of uh, maybe too simple of a description, but it's a little bit more realistic than traditional anime in that it sticks a little more to, you know, typical realistic human proportions. You know, it has the roundness, you know, there, 
you know, more accurate heads tall to a human, a real human than, you know, anime would be where anime would be, you know, typical, you know, and I don't want to stereotype all anime or put all anime into a box. That's impossible. But typically what you would think of anime, much more exaggerated proportions, you know, a girl's legs may be eight heads tall, you know, so you would think of, you know, that the style being a lot more, it's a lot softer. It's a lot rounder. That being the visual style. And, you know, sort of, I, I think about sort of the pastel color palettes as well. And then you think about the animation, the animation, because you, you're dealing with Studio Ghibli and, you know, one thing that you have to really point out is that you're dealing with feature film budgets. So the animation is already going to be a lot fuller than your typical, a lot more, a lot fuller and a lot higher budget than your typical OAV or your typical episode in an anime series. You're already dealing with feature film budgets, so they have that that advantage to make the animation much more lush, the animation and the movement itself. But the mark, the thing that's so important to stress about Ghibli's work at, with Miyazaki at the helm and all of his lieutenants, and brilliant, you know, everything down from not only the animators and the and the animation directors and Miyazaki himself, but the storyboard artists. You know, the visual, you know, the the storyboard artists, I would say the character designers, the background designers, everything is that, but especially more with the animation, you're getting much more thoughtful and nuanced movement and acting. You were saying a little bit before, like, if you're getting, you know, in a serviceable, if you're thinking about producing an animated movie and you're thinking about being on a budget everything's on a budget everything's on a schedule i know that full well i've been doing this for a long time including high budget disney films and you know pixar films and ghibli films but you think about it getting from a to z in production you have a sequence and sasuke is running through the woods well you just have a run from a to b right no it's a kid and they're whimsical and they do silly shit and they do things that are unnecessary. So she's going to hop over the tree root, even though the tree root's not really in her branch. She's going to go out of her way to go to that tree root, jump over it, and then veer back onto the path so she could get to that. You know what I mean? Like that sort of unnecessary detail, which lends such a thoughtfulness and a joy and a resonance. And even if you're not really realizing it on that level when you're watching it, that sort of detail is resonating with you because it's about kids. You know, it's about May is following her little sister, her big sister around. And her big sister is doing a cartwheel through the grass. Well, May can't do a cartwheel. So when she gets to that, she's running around right behind her sister, emulating everything she's doing. And when she gets to that point of the cartwheel, she does like this half-assed tumble salt because she can't do the cartwheel. You know, that sort of attention to detail. You were referring to something last night where the girls first get to their new house and they're running along and they're so joyful. Like, look at this, look at that. And they get to this little point where there's like a little bridge over a stream and they look down and you see the running water and you see it's a clear water and you can see to the bottom. It's a foot or a foot and a half. And you said, oh, look at the bottom. There's a bottle on the bottom of the stream. Like there was no reason that they had to paint a, bo- a mud covered bottle on the bottom of the stream. But that's realistic. That's a, that extra touch. It's going, you know, it's going a little further to get that extra bit of detail to make it, you know, to put that quality in. And that's what Studio Ghibli was always to me. You know, I have a list actually here of little details that you know, or like unnecessary, quote unquote, unnecessary details, but those extra things going that extra mile to make it. And that's what makes Studio Ghibli stand apart for me. You know, it's not, you know, it's, it's, there's, there's so much thoughtfulness behind every element of the, of the film, of, of the piece. 
you know, and that's why I think that's why people love it. I think so, too. I think that, well, I mean, there's clearly multiple reasons why people love these movies and are attracted to them so much. Right. And sure. I think that that's certainly a major part of it. Another thing that is so interesting about these movies is the soundtrack. Brandon Hardman wrote into us and said, this isn't the movie that I discovered Miyazaki with, but it is the one that made me realize who Joe Hisashi is. Mm-hmm. The Totoro soundtrack is my favorite movie soundtrack of all time. And Joe Hisashi is a go to for when I want relaxing music when I drive. I approach him the same way Dagan describes approaching boards of Canada. What are your opinions on (laughs) this movie's score? So I have a lot to say about this because I was really, really, really shocked by how much major video game composers have completely copied this man. And I was really also shocked by when I was reading about him. I'm like, how many video game soundtracks has this guy scored? Holy shit. Yeah. Zero. With the exception of the Nino Kuni games. Nothing. Like, so I was, I, I, I assume that this is relatable to role-playing game fans, especially. I kept, I couldn't stop saying it. No, you were very dialed into it. Yeah, I was like, this is, because first of all, there are like these little 15 or 20 second interludes at the most. They play some of them over and over again. You never, I'm sure on the soundtrack, you get the full composition, but I was like, this sounds like a town in a role-playing game. This sounds like fucking Wild Arms. This <laughs> it sounds really like does. Dragon Quest. This sound, it's like, it, it, you can tell that this particular soundtrack was so influential. And there's one song in particular that I actually haven't cross-referenced yet, but I'm going to do it after we're recording this because it's on my mind now. There's a song in Final Fantasy IV that sounds just like a song on on the soundtrack. And I'm going to I'm gonna put them side oh, by side and see. Me. Yeah, I, I can. I don't know if it's just like a, like one part of it or whatever, but From I'm like, Final wow. Fantasy this, yeah, I'm like, this is incredible. One of my favorite games of all time. So... I have to say that this particular composer, I think I'm saying his name right, Joe Hisashi. Or yeah, I think so, yeah. Hisashi or... Yeah, um, you're saying it right. You know, I was just shocked when I looked at his discography, as it were, or the, the things that he's composed. He's basically just been the composer of Studio Ghibli and done a couple of other side projects, but that's it. Yeah. He has like only like 15 or 17 soundtracks or compositions to his name wow, since amazing. the 80s. Not a lot. So unless that, unless that was like a selected discography, which I don't think it was. So... I was just really, 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 really taken aback in a good way, drawn in by the soundtrack. I thought the soundtrack was so Japanese and so role playing game esque that I couldn't even believe it. I just couldn't believe it. Yeah, it, it, more than any other Japanese anime I've ever seen, and I've seen many. That was the thing that really was drawn out to me, and I'm like, man, this guy must be a famous composer. It's funny, isn't of, it? Of, oh, he is a famous composer. He must be a famous gaming composer, right? Is you what would I think. Right. You know, he must have done Breath of Fire or Star Ocean or something like something I don't know. And and no, nothing. But you're right. It's a good point. I think it's just his influence. You it's know? obvious. If anyone den- if anyone listens to that shit and denies that, that you're fucking nuts. Right. Yeah. Oh, no. If you have any experience with Japanese role playing. games, Absolutely. Like I could I, like you could literally be like, this is the town scene. This is the world. <laughs> this is the world map. This is when you're in menus. This is a battle sequence. You know, I'm like, what? Like, it, 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 I was really quite impressed. You, you, And it speaks to Colin, too, of course, being, you know, a musician, that he was so dialed into the music. But a lot of it, Kyle, we realized last night, especially that uh, I think it's so pronounced, too, because the music stops and starts a lot in this movie. It does. It doesn't carry the way a song carries in lots of other, you know, th- there's no there's no sequences or anything like that. Yeah, it just no. kind of, it's kind of, it actually, in a way, reminds me of sitcoms. And, the, you know, like when you when you're turning over a scene or it's the next day in the sitcom and you have like the baseline and Seinfeld, sure. you have whatever it is, yeah, the, yeah, uh, yeah. the full house music or whatever the case might a little be. sting or something. Right, like that you're familiar with. And Saved by the Bell has that famous like transitionary music. Yeah. It almost reminded me of that. Like where it was like, it's the next day or another scene or whatever. It almost segued like a sitcom. Absolutely. Very well said. 
Yeah, well very, said. very interesting stuff. Very well said. So I, I don't know. Do you have anything additionally to say about the composition because uh, of the of the music before we move on to? I have a few other letters I want to read from the audience. Oh, yeah, I want to make sure yeah. we cover everything. I'm looking forward to that. No, I mean, I mean, my favorite Ghibli soundtrack is probably Princess Mononoke. I think it's very, very emotional. So also, that's probably also maybe one of my favorite Ghibli movies. Although Totoro is in my top five. That was the first Ghibli movie that I saw when it came out. You had it. Um, I don't know if I, I actually think Mononoke is 98, right? So it couldn't have been at the old house. I think you might have brought it. Yeah, I think so. I think you might have brought it home to dad's when we were on the island when we moved back. Okay. And I remember seeing that was the first time I had a record. That wasn't the first Miyazaki film I'd ever seen, but it was the first time that I had known who he was and what Studio Ghibli was and then kind of put some other stuff that I'd seen in the past. Okay. Like Kiki's Delivery Service and shit in the context. Right. But Mononoke is my favorite one. Is that your favorite? I, well, we'll I absolutely love that movie. It's so good. I love the designs. I love the wolf. I love the oh, wolves. I, I just everything. Right. I the was themes. really enamored, and it's very video game esque, which is. is another thing that I really. It love is. About that would have made an amazing game. Which is shot. Yeah, it almost like it's really not. It's almost stylistically. Okami is almost like maybe yeah. some similar yeah. kind of thing. But Okami not, might not have really. taken some influence from from princess mononoke okay, but we'll definitely do a show on that yeah it's entirely possible that that's true let's get through a few more of these letters here all right let's do it so remember friend. again you could support us on patreon if you want to submit your thoughts like heg did the man or woman not only is heg greetings dagan and colin i'll never forget my dad in the late 90s renting the totoro vhs from a local video store for us to watch over the weekend because he read about it in the paper what I love about this film, which I couldn't appreciate at the time, was the great job the film does of expressing in the art and animation that well-known Miyazaki theme, the continuing persistence of abundant nature in a modern world. That's another interesting theme as well. Definitely. Nature. Definitely. Right? Oh, very well put. And I wonder if there's like almost some sort of kindred connection between Miyazaki and Miyamoto in the sense that they were both so heavily influenced by that. It seems like I don't know nearly as much about Miyazaki as I do uh, Miyamoto. Yeah. But, you know, Miyamoto always talks about how Zelda is very much about his childhood and exploring and all sure. that kind of stuff. And I wonder if there's a similar kind of uh, prescience of nature in Miyazaki's childhood that makes it seem like he needs to revisit that, especially as Japan power. modernized. So ra- I mean, Japan modernized long before the war, but really yeah. after the war was built back up and is a unique place where like its capital city has a third of its population. So it leaves all of this agrarian area to explore as if it's lost in the past, which, again, is why I thought it was contemporary to the 80s. Until, you know, you get the little clues that it's not. Yeah. No, very good point. Very good parallel to draw between those two men. I've never heard them mentioned in the same breath, oddly, before you just said that. But you could, you automatically draw those parallels. Certainly different temperaments, which is a little disappointing. I mean, <laughs> Miyamoto couldn't be any more open and, many, and any more kind. Which is so nice. Yeah. When somebody could be humble in that. I mean, I couldn't imagine. That would t- change the whole complexion of Nintendo for me if, if Miyamoto was oh. like... It wouldn't change his brilliance, but it would change his whole because he, he really does come from a place of joy, which I really don't think Miyazaki really cares well too much said. about. Well yeah. said. Yeah, absolutely. I think in fact, I would go as far as to say not to get a big tangent on Nintendo, but I think Nintendo needs Miyamoto because I think Nintendo's reputation sometimes is a little bit lacking in kindness. <laughs> so Miyamoto is sort of that face, you know, but again, like just have, you know, just talking about the, you know, two geniuses, one, you know, one having a, a real authentic humility and one not apparently not. <laughs> yeah, exactly. indeed. Put to put it lightly, I suppose. Jason Bola wrote into us and said, my neighbor Totoro was my first Ghibli movie back in the nineties. And it holds a special place in my heart because of it. Every time we went to our local video store, I'd ask to rent it. 
would have been much cheaper to just buy it with how much I watched it. <laughs> Years later, I started collecting all the films after Disney had acquired the distribution rights. While watching it, I noticed they actually changed one of the iconic scenes and the voice acting was not as great in English. Dagan, do you have a preference for the releases of the film? Do you think with G, what is it, G Kids or GKIDS? What is that? I don't know what that is. I At the know. helm, we'll get another iteration, or will they focus on the theatrical showings while making them widely available for purchase? I don't know what that is. I don't. I don't know what that is either. I, I might I, miss something. I am curious though what you think about the difference in the. You know, I was reading a little bit there. As you had mentioned earlier, there are two different English language dubs. dubs of this one from the early 90s and then another one when when that the Fox's rights to it elapsed and Disney took it. Yeah, they were ready to take it because they did it in no time. It like yeah, elapsed yeah. and they did it. Yeah, I saw that. The dates are like they really were funny. positioned. So I'm wondering um, if you have any thoughts on which one is better, because I was reading something in that. They really took a lot of liberties, apparently, with the, some of the translation of early Miyazaki films yes. in English, and he had like a massive problem with it. Oh, like, he so like he demanded stroke. that like nothing. We've discussed this maybe in the past, on certainly on other shows that I've done. But for people that don't know, translating and localizing are two different things. Things are translated, but then you have localization writers that are familiar with both languages, so Japanese and English, that can localize it, meaning that you make it relevant to the audience that you're you're talking to. So if there's like some sort of Japanese in joke that no one's going to understand, you translate it so that. It's an in-joke about something that Americans would understand or whatever. And apparently this was happening like wantonly with his early movies. And he like apparently flipped out about it. And so I guess Disney's translation is incredibly true to the Japanese translation, including like no cultural touchstones for Americans to even glean onto, which is interesting. But also, I think it's puzzling because I think that's part of the reason why the movie's so fucking vague. You know? Yes, absolutely. And I think I well, I think the problem stems with with Miyazaki's content and Ghibli's films with translation, because when you have that purposeful, you know, sort of obtuseness or vagueness and you don't want to spell everything out beat for beat. And there's sort of that mystique in there. I think that's inherently one problem in translation. And I think that's inherently why Miyazaki famously flipped out over not only Totoro's, you know, I mean, the first mishap happened with Nausicaa. Um, when they went to direct a video with Nausicaa and they, they, you know, they changed the title to Warriors of the Wind. And it was just a, it was just a butchering of the translation, apparently. And I remember Warriors of the Wind. I remember watching Warriors of the Wind in college, early on in college, because that was a lot of my colleagues that weren't into anime. That was a lot of them. Their introduction to anime was because that was one of the VHSs that like KB Toys famously carried. In like their discount bin, like along with like Captain Harlock, My Youth in Arcadia, some early Robotech stuff. And it was like Warriors of the Wind, which was Nausicaa. But it was taken and butchered. And I think they edit, they re-edited it and stuff like added stuff. I don't know. Really, Miyazaki had a bad experience with that. And then with the 1993 Fox video release, the Streamlines Pictures dub, which I don't remember ever seeing. I don't remember it. And maybe because that this newer dub the you know Ellen Dakota fanning dub is so like you know kind of stamped into my brain now but he yeah there was a lot of problems with it according to Miyazaki now what happened was John Lasseter famously you know had, had you know was the chief creative head of Disney before everything happened with him a year or two ago he came he was a huge Ghibli fan he was a huge Miyazaki fan and I think what happened was Miyazaki found a sympathetic ear and Lasseter they were you know they were contemporaries Lasseter being you know a genius creative himself 
and obviously sympathetic to wanting to, you know, head of Pixar and, you know, as a result, head of Disney. He, you know, of course, was sympathetic to Miyazaki wanting to, you know, basically make sure everything was according to his vision in the translation. So I think Lasseter largely came in and made sure that that the quality was intact, you know, from A to Z. But the 2005 dub now, when Fox's dub rights elapsed in 2004, Disney jumped on it. And I really like the 2005. I, I haven't watched this movie in Japanese. If I have watched this movie in Japanese, I have forgotten it. And I, I'm very traditional when it comes to sub over dub. You guys know that. Like I would almost 100% of the time recommend watching something subtitled over a dub because, and I say that not to put down North American or English or other language voice actors, because I think they do a great job, and I'm very sympathetic to voice acting. First of all, it's very difficult. Second of all, it's very difficult to adhere to the vision of something that was done already in a previous language because of the certain, you know, all the all the ins and outs and sort of ebbs and flows of doing it in another language and trying to stick to the vision and the in- intonation and all that kind of stuff. But you have to understand, like, what the people that make these cartoons, if they're Japanese cartoons, it's the Japanese voice actor in the booth giving direction to the Japanese, you know, the Japanese voice director, I should say, or the director of the piece, giving direction to the Japanese voice actors in the booth, you know, with the story, original storyboards and the original scripts. It's at its purest form. You know, there's no, you know, every, every iteration you do in another language is, you know, for right or for wrong, inherently, it's just the way it is. It's watered down. So having that, you know, you have the directors and the creators vision in the Japanese, in the booth of the Japanese voice actors. That's just the way it is. It's always going to be better because of that. You know what I mean? It's always going to be more authentic because of that. So although the, you know, the English voice actors or whatever, French or Spanish, whatever it is, they could do an amazing job and they often do. But I love the 2005, the Disney dub because Elle and Dakota Fanning, obviously real sisters, both amazing, enormous actresses. I'm big fans of both of them. But they do such a great job in this movie. Very charming. I really paid attention to it watching it these last two times in the run-up to doing the episode with Kyle because... And they go to great lengths. And I'm sure they had great direction in John Lasseter, too, because he's a great... He, you know, he's a great director for all the thing, all the other things he wasn't doing great. But, right. But... They did a wonderful job with the dub and even the little nuances and inflections and everything. They really nailed it. You know, they really they're very they do a very charming, you know. Yeah, I've often wondered, you know, I guess the most recent anime I really immersed myself in Japanese anime as opposed to like a Castlevania, which is more of a Western style. anime. Yeah. Was uh, Attack on Titan when I was working my way through the first season of that. I still haven't watched anything else of it. I, I really like it a lot. But I was thinking about that. I was watching, obviously, the sub and. I was wondering, like, how do you get around? There's a Jap- a very Japanese thing in role playing games and in anime and stuff of people screaming and of people getting really fucking mad and like yeah. it's over. It's very melodramatic Anger. and yeah. it's over, you know. And I'm like, I don't know how you even how that even translates. Like, and, and I'm not saying literally. I'm saying like this character is clearly screaming. It's not going to make any sense to do this in English, but his character is screaming on the screen. Sure. So how do you you have to like rewrite what he's saying probably, and then you start getting into the weeds yeah right? which absolutely. is why so i agree with you that i think the i don't mind i'm i know that it's like very sacrilegious for a lot of anime people but i was interested in that on even on crunchy roll and some other services they seem to have options for 
dubbed content for like everything. So there are like a bunch of people that watch this shit dubbed. Oh, people don't want uh, because people don't want to read. Right. And I understand that. That is tough. That was the tough thing for Attack on Titan with me because I'm not unless I'm like to be perfectly honest with you, unless I'm like hyper engaged in yeah. something like unless I'm watching something that like Mad Men, the a new episode of Mad Men I'd never seen or something like that. Right. Sure, sure. Disney, I'm not 100 percent paying attention to what's going on, on the TV. I'm just not right. And that was a tough thing with me on Attack on Titan, right? I like, couldn't look at my phone every once in a while, wherever, and, I'm, and then I'd like, look up two minutes later. I'm like, ah, oh, fuck. I have no idea like what even happened. You missed here. it. And, you know, and I, have, I have to rewind because I have to read Being it. so many characters. Right. You know what, Kyle? The thing is that we should say, because some people do get mad at me because of my stance on subbing over dubbing. And, I, you know, again, I you know, especially with Attack on Titan, that is such a high quality dub. But again, like it just doesn't match the Japanese voice. I mean, the ta- Attack on Titan Japanese voice acting, I've said this before, but I've never, and I've been, I've been watching and listening to anime for a very long time. There has never been a higher quality voice acting job, you know, authentic voice acting job than that series. It's unbelievable. Like all the way down to like the voice, you know, the voice actors, voices cracking, getting stressed out. Like, you know, it's unbelievable the nuance in it, but the, the American voice acting is amazing. But here's the thing with voice acting. If I started watching Attack on Titan, having never seen the Japanese, then the, the the English voice acting would have been totally acceptable. Right. So right. it's whatever you're subjecting yourself yeah, to. Yeah, I think that there's you a, know? there's always been with gaming and with anime, these very gatekeeper-ish type yeah. hobbies, yeah. for better or for worse. There's always been this like false purity test that people put on themselves more than anything else. Sure. You know, that's I've always found that a little peculiar. It's like upholding yourself as a purist right. and not being able to break that. Right. I know I know that all too well because I come from a parallel industry to anime, which is video games. Right, of course. You know, and it's the same fucking thing. So <laughs> it you know, it doesn't you know, it's like does does this game have the Japanese voice acting? And I'm like, I don't fucking know. You know? Like I've gotten through game entire role playing games where like, did you use a Japanese voice acting? And I'm like, no. <laughs> I'm not gonna play a sixty hour Tales game in Japanese. Right. And read it all. Right, right, right. You know, you what I'm going to do is let a cutscene play for 15 minutes and go make a sandwich while I listen to it. <laughs> That's what's going to happen, you know? <laughs> Did you play Mega Man 11 in English or Japanese? English. You were telling me that it was it was really nice in Japanese, right? I, You know, I just love, you know, be, of course, just because I'm such an anime head, right? I, I just love now in this new world of being able to, from the outset, play these games in Japanese. You know, I, you know if they put out a new Chrono Trigger game, I'm not going to play in Japanese. I can't understand what the hell is going on or a new Final Fantasy game or whatever, a role playing game. Right. I can't. But if I could play a Mega Man game in Japanese. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. I tried to play a Final Fantasy game in Japanese. I told this story on Sacred Symbols. You did. Yeah. uh, About Final Fantasy 12 and how IGN wanted me to try to write the strategy guide based on the Japanese version. And I went to tried that. I went to Snell Library in Northeastern, printed out all the things like how you say tonic and Phoenix down and everything in Japanese. And I tried for like a day and I'm like, fuck this. Fuck this. This is fucking nuts. What was I even thinking? I'm like, I I thought I was literally gonna like go screen by screen and be like, okay. Like not really read the story, but at least like menus and stuff like that. And I'm like, I That's insane. You know, like what is fire and ice and lightning and all that? Like I was trying to find yeah. No, it's nuts. No, absolutely insane. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but I generally, yeah, th- there is this like gatekeeperish aspect of gaming, which I think we're all somewhat responsible for. I- I've been responsible for that as well. I definitely don't judge individuals based on the type of games they play or their frequency of games, but right. I definitely take into account what they have to say about video games based on how much they play them. Right. You know? right so, right. so there is there is a gatekeeperish aspect where I'm like, yeah, everyone come and play. I'm super interested in what you have to say about video games, but I'm probably going to pay more attention to you 
if I think you're on my level as far as knowledge and play and stuff of like course, that. Of you know? absolutely. So I get it. You know, I don't want to be like that. No, but that's just but inherently. That's just the, but that's just the way it is. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Jacob Spellman wrote in us. Hey, Jacob. He said, I watched this movie for the first time and only time with my roommate in college, and I will never forget the cat bus scene because there is a small section where the camera is directly under cat bus. There are multiple cat bus scenes, but at this exact part of the movie, one of my roommates broke the spell that Miyazaki's work had cast upon all of us when he suddenly yelled, cat bus has balls. No. This bold exclamation resulted in us stopping the movie and spending about 10 minutes meticulously rewinding and pausing the movie until we were able to capture the frame that proves that Cat Bus does indeed have balls. I'm going to look it up. What are some of your small details that make this movie so memorable for you? Well, you look that up. I will say one of those small things that I thought that was somewhat of a negative that Dagan and I were talking about from an animation perspective, and Dagan can give or shed much more light on this, yep, there it is. which I think added stillness to the backgrounds. We were talking about that earlier was when they would put, or when Miyazaki or his team would put in these little flourishes, these animation flourishes in the backgrounds that only made a part of the background move. So it actually made the rest of the backgrounds more still, which I thought was a weird design choice. And what they do that with the most in the movie is with flowing water. Yes. They'll only animate literally four lines that are each a few centimeters, but it's almost distracting. Like it almost adds like a movement to the, to the animation that makes the backgrounds look more fake. But at the, at the same time, Dagan was saying that obviously they're not going for like a photorealistic or any sort of realistic background as opposed to like a watercolor, yeah. poppy, colorful, whatever kind of uh, Right. A little more painterly, that. you know. Kyle, check this out. Can you see yeah, from there? See. Yeah, I yeah, found yeah. it right Turn away. Turn your left. That Dagan's on his he's sort of, It's sort of the part where he seems to be jumping off the f- telephone pole. So it's not uh, the telephone line. So it's not the initial appearance of Cat Bus. Can I get a little closer than that? There it is. There it is. Let me see. He indeed has testes back there. Yeah. And a belly button as well? They're not really. That's not. Those are. That's something. But that they aren't what I thought we were going to see. Which is like a sack. Oh, you thought you were going to see like the pink pink shriveled up? Like I thought I was going to see like, you know, like when a dog gets excited. (gasps) The lipstick? Yeah. I was a little little bit disappointed, to be honest. That that wasn't what it was. (laughs) Digging the final inquiry you have about this movie before we begin to wrap up and say what else we need to say about Miyazaki's classic Please. anime. Dustin Furman, who is uh, Colin Moriarty's editor, wrote in and said, Hayao Miyazaki is a genius, and this movie will always stand as a timeless classic. I find it funny how, how he has retired numerous times, only to come back to work on his next masterpiece. I've always admired his dedication to the craft and his unique way of telling stories. I highly recommend the documentary The Kingdom of Dreams and Madness that follows Miyazaki and his friend and rival Aseo Takahata, the documentary showcases the creation of their competing films, The Wind The Wind Rises, and I accidentally deleted the end of it, so I don't know what the rest of it is. Okay. Sorry, Dustin. <laughs> <laughs> when I saw that I actually accidentally did that to the message and I saw that it was Dustin that said it, I'm like, that's fine. Oh, Dustin. <laughs> Dustin, just cut this out. But don't, because it's your thing. No, don't cut it out. Because it says the documentary showcases the creation of their upcoming films, The Wind Rises and the <laughs> Sorry, Dustin. But Poor do you know Dustin. anything about that documentary? That sounds interesting to me. I want to look into this. The Kingdom of Dreams and Madness. It follows Hayao Miyazaki, Miyazaki and Iseo Takahata. Yeah, which is his contemporary, his director, who, you know, who is the guy who, who directed Grave of the Fireflies and other things. But well, what no, do you, well, the, first of all, there's been a few documentaries. Mm-hmm. This this iteration I haven't seen. Most of the document, most of the Ghibli documentaries were either made for the Studio Ghibli Museum or they were very... I don't know how to say it exactly. Like very fake, I want to say. Like made me, you know, very like staged. Right, right. You know what I mean? So no, this one sounds really particularly interesting. And you know, Miyazaki's just really interesting because he he keeps saying he's going to retire and he just keeps going. 
Yeah, it's crazy. Like there are things, you know, they it's like it's so common when people say you you basically die when you retire when you're not doing what you're passionate about and you probably just can't stay away. Like what's the point of retiring? It's the love of his life. Away? It's the love of his life. To, to draw for yourself, I guess you can do that. But. Sure. Absolutely, but still, I mean, just being the love of his life, I mean, that's, you know, it's relatable. I mean, it, it you know, I know, you know, famously it's been a lot of things um his son Goro has spoken out about it who who direct, who's directed a, a Ghibli movie, but you know, and, and Miyazaki's even come out and talked badly about his son's movie. I mean, he's just he's just a weird dude. <laughs> That's man. awesome. I was going to ask if you he was married I mean? and had kids. But famously, just a bad father. You know, he, he was a family man. He had a wife and kids or anything, which is f- apparently not a good father, you know, which is weird because he always portrays, you know, good parents in the films. And Animation widow. You would say, yeah, I mean, but, you know, no sort of no regard for anything except for Studio Ghibli and for his films. And I, you know, I, I, I say that not really knowing, but you know, from everything I've garnered on him over the years and ascertained. I can I mean, kind of relate to that. Again, we've talked about like. that before. The creativity and the cr- the creative sure. process requires incredible sacrifice or understanding spouses, but usually not both. No. I mean, it does take an understanding. I mean, Richard Williams, famous animator, Richard Williams, who was a famous commercial animator in England. And um, I think he's originally Canadian, but... Huge fan of Disney, directed Raggedy Ann and Andy movie, and then directed, famously directed Roger, all the animation in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Brilliant man. Amazing draftsman, amazing animator. And just, and you know, his passion for animation, you know, did two brilliant animation books. And his passion for animation exceeds almost everybody. But he famously said, you know, when you're an animator, you know, you either have you know, a wife you don't see or no wife at all. Like, that's it. Like, that's that's just the way it's going to be, you know. And, you know, that comes from somebody who dedicated his life to the craft. And it's something that, you know, that's it, you know. You have an understanding wife or no wife. Just like I dedicated myself to smoking weed and playing video games. <laughs> now, Kyle, I wanted, yeah. to, I wanted to, well, first of all, I'm going to give you a couple of small details that I love in this Please, movie please, that, please do. So, you know, there, so a previous writer was saying, what details do you love? Dad catching his hat as it almost flies off while he's driving, he has his head out the window and he's driving, he sort of catches it and has to put it back on. And just, we talked about this already, but May copying everything that Sasuke does. You know, following her around and emulating her throughout the movie is such a joyful, it's such a, you know, being an older sibling, you, you could really relate to it, but also it's just such a joyful thing. It's something that you, ra- it's just such a joyful detail that you rarely see in movies that just makes you smile, you know? And that's sort of peppered throughout, especially the first half of the movie. And I love that, you know, you had pointed out the beautifully painted and animated stream bed in the beginning with the bottle on the bottom. But there's a part of that. There's like sort of mud and algae growing on top of the stuff down there. And, it, you know, you have this clear water. You could see straight to the bottom and it's sort of wiggling in the flowing water, which I always thought was a beautiful little detail right in the beginning of the movie. And then, the, you know, the rotted. We saw this yesterday, too. The rot. We were laughing the rotting and weathered wood and the chipping paint on the porch and sort of like the portico beams Mm -hmm. and the moldings and stuff. And just how crazy kids are. (laughs) That seems so funny because they're like shaking this thing. Like I always think about that stuff as an adult. I'm like, what are you doing? But if I I was like 10 years old, I would have probably died. Oh my God. You don't even think wood falling on top. Cause you're not even thinking about that. Like I remember crawling on the wood pot, giant wood piles in the backyard and mom and dad would get like mortified and be like, what? Listen, dude, I, What's I'll, gonna happen? I'll say this over and over again. As we said on the show, it's, there's nothing stupider than a human child, right? 
Like, I really, at the end of the day, it's like, I watched even, like, and I don't mean it as an insult. Like, you even watch your nieces and nephews, my nieces and nephews sometimes. I'm like, what the fuck is going on here? No, because they have, you know, ne- it's like, like, I'm like, what is going on here? Because they have a <laughs> complete lack of experience. <laughs> yeah, I know. They it's haven't so experienced anything It's yet. so funny, man. Like, I, I find, I find so much humor in children, like little kids, right. and even teenagers. Like now that Declan's a teenager and Lily is kind of getting there or whatever. It's like, I find humor in them. And their awkwardness. Because they like, don't know anything either. Yeah, they, no, they, they think they that's they're even worse because yeah. they think they know something. Which at least makes kids. It, at least kids are ignorant and don't even plead any other way. Right. right? They're just like, yeah, we're stupid. You know, now you're dealing with teenagers. Like, teenagers yeah, like, oh, they still don't know anything. You probably even know less than you're than when you were younger. Oh, and they, they, they know yeah, more. they know less. They think they know everything and they're out to prove that they know everything. So it's like completely dangerous. It's like the worst cocktail ever. Oh, it's hard. Yeah, you know, parenthood sounds great. But I remember being a teenager. I mean, I remember being a lot older than Declan and Lily and being completely out of my mind. Dude, I, mean, I was even, out of my mind in college. I, I mean, you know, oh, me too. These kids have a long way to go. Oh, you know? dude, just I was out of my gourd even like when I first got my first job out of college. <laughs> I, you're I so said, crazy. I've said many age. times I didn't become an adult really until you, I don't think you become an adult until you're 25. No, I agree. Oh, at least, especially men. I think girls mature a little faster. I will say that. And I say that, you know, I say that we've had nannies that were that young, like 24, 25. And they were, I remember feeling like, oh yeah, like being 10 years older and being like, yeah, this, this girl's like a lot more mature than me. What am I worried about with the kids? You know, I wouldn't mind a 24, 24, five year old <laughs> nanny for me. <laughs> Should we get you one? I want a nanny. All right. Yeah, that'd be great. Why not? It's a little weird, but it's fine. That's what Aaron won't mind. Well, she probably wouldn't. Yeah, because <laughs> I told her one of my one of my dreams if I ever became filthy rich is I want to have like a uh, I want to hire like a twenty something year old man or woman or whatever driver and assistant. I just oh, want to okay. have a person who drives me around and is my assistant. A driver. And Aaron says that she can just play that role. If okay. I'm rich. And I'm like, but the idea is, is that, that is we fun? enjoy ourselves. Okay. By making someone else do it. Oh, oh, oh I see. I yeah. see. Yeah, you understand. I do understand. And there's a good chance that I would hire, you know, a hot 20-something-year-old girl. Probably. Now, I, I'll I'll cop to something here, Carl. Mm. I remember the talk when, we, when you know, mom and dad were separated and you were a little guy, mm. six years old, and there was talk of getting an au pair. Really? There, oh, there was talk of getting an au pair. Really? Now, picture 18-year-old Dagan. Oh, my God. You would have had... So- we're gonna get we're gonna get an au pair. All right, like a twenty year old a twenty year old French au pair. You know, I remember me and PJ being like, "What? Like this is gonna be unbelievable." <laughs> 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 when is this gonna happen? And you know what ended up happening? Mrs. Curry. Was Mrs. That her name? Curry? Was that her name? Fuck! I hated Instead Mrs. Curry. Instead of the au pair, we got like a fifty five year old. She sucked. Frumpy. Sorry, Mrs. Curry, but you no, were fuck frump- Mrs. Curry. But you She's, were frumpy. Yo, Miss Curry sucked. Like from the, like a church, she was like dad found her through the church volunteers. Yeah. Uh, dad, what happened to the au pair? Like I'm picturing, like I'm at, we're out of our minds, right? We're picturing like French maid outfit and the whole thing, right? Right. I don't, that was we shouldn't have been picturing that. You but even Miss Curry in the French maid outfit. I think I think Dad tried for that. Oh no, my, no. Oh my god. Oh, Miss Curry. I, I remember Miss Curry so vividly because she sucks. She was the worst. She sucks. I mean, I don't know if you have any Miss Curry stories, but I have a million of them. We Y'all, can save it for. I mean, you're doing Miss Curry. I just, topic? I just, rem, I just speci- Well, we could do like a babysitter thing or something. I don't know, but I just, speci- I just specifically remember my, Eric, my, our friend, my friend Eric Schumann, still a buddy of mine. Saw him, had dinner with him in San Francisco actually a couple of years ago. Okay, and he and his mom, you know, he lived down the street. He was one of my really good friends. He's actually really central in my love of Star Wars, and we'll talk more about that. And especially specifically action figures. Okay, and Dungeon. He's the one who introduced me to Dungeons and Dragons. D and D. So his, you know, he lived down the street and I remember his mom and him driving up and just randomly when I was home being like, hey, we're going, 
I don't know where the fuck we were going. We'll go to Smithhaven Mall or something like that. You want to come with us? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I remember Miss Carter being like, you can't. You got to go to religion class or whatever. And I remember oh. I remember it. So I remember that <gasps> moment. So when I was like so mad at her and I hated her ever since then. I hated her. <laughs> she was the worst. Picture my picture me and PJ's disappointment. We think we're getting an au pair. Right. Oh, my God. Yeah, Miss Curry was... Uh, and that was also after mom left and stuff. So I think there was just a lot of angst and anger generally. Uh, but I remember... I remember being so mad at her after that. Oh. And like, I just could, I think I was actually, I, I wasn't a bad kid. And I think that I was actually actively and trying to be bad for her. Like, right, right, I was right. in third grade, I think. So it's you not like, third? oh, okay. All right. Because mom left when we were in second grade. And I think this is what, or I was in second grade. And I think that this was a like the next late, year. A year later. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, dude. Can you imagine? I didn't I, know that that was the conversation. That's an oh, exciting conversation. The old pair thing? Yeah. I, and I remember thinking to myself, like, that was probably I'm 18. Like, I was probably thinking pretty myself, about that, too. <laughs> he was probably, pro- I mean, come on. Yeah, why He's not? He's a red-blooded male. Dad, yeah. were you excited about that? <laughs> Be honest. I mean, it was up to you. You're the one who made, he had to make the exact opposite aesthetic decision in order to temper himself. Oh, you know? dude. To I s- mean, I remember really feeling like, I'm 18. Is that going to be weird? Who cares? <laughs> like, I remember having that exact thought. Like, who gives a shit? Yeah, it's going to be weird. It's gonna be fucking amazing. Yeah, we're, and we're gonna get it. We're gonna make it as weird as possible. <laughs> you fucking kidding me? Oh well. Uh, those are the those are the heady days of. I thought we were getting a no pair. Yeah, those were heady days. Ninety two, ninety three. Those were. Were a blur. Really were. Oh, Dang, do you have anything else you want to point you out know what? before I we bring up Kyle? Yeah. Mm. There was actually, which I had found out through researching this. I was a little embarrassed not to know this previously. There's a sequel. To my neighbor Totoro. Really, I didn't know that. Yes, let me find. Let me find this. Now, it was only shown for a limited time in the Studio Ghibli Museum in Japan. Now, let me find out. Let me find this in the meantime. So, Kyle, Mm. Ghibli Miyazaki created a sequel to Totoro, which was a 13-minute short called "May and the Kitten Bus." I didn't say cat bus. Oh. Wow. I said kitten bus. May and the cat bus. So what happens is it's May and the kitten bus meet for the first time and go on an adventure. Now, I haven't seen it. I couldn't find it. It's not available. But they played this short at the Studio Ghibli Museum in Japan for a limited release. Of course, I still haven't seen it. And I'm just going to appeal to Studio Ghibli. I know you're listening. Please send me a copy. I'm a big fan. Yeah, there's no bootlegs any, of it or anything like that, huh? No, I can't. And you know what I what I immediately wondered is, does this film, when I first heard about it and started to research it, I said, wait a second, does this film answer any questions? You know, because, you know, it's, let's face it, my neighbor Totoro is pretty cryptic. <laughs> pretty cryptic yeah, film. to say the least. So, but I don't think it does. Again, I think it's just a standalone adventure with, it sounds like May and the kitten bus. I saw a couple images. It looks adorable. Is May the same age? I believe older? May looks like she's four. Okay, uh, if I'm not mistaken. So what? Oh, what? What do you have to what say? What is about? happening? I'm there? sorry that we got we got it wrong. It's not a dog bus. It's not a puppy bus. There's no one here, Lola. So there's, it's just impossible that anything's happening that you need to be barking about. Yeah, you need to stop. Come here. Come over there. Go over there, you. You're such a good lady. So you know what, Kyle? I think that's it. You know what? The other the other I was telling you this little tidbit yesterday. Uh, a lot of you guys will know the creator of the Earthbound. Mother series in Japan, Shigesato Itoi, plays the voice of the dad in the Japanese version, which I always thought was pretty cool. That is very interesting. Pretty cool. He was a really interesting man because he seems to have his hand in so many things. Did you ever see the uh, episode of Iron Chef with him on it? No, I don't think oh, so. Oh, it's fantastic. I love Iron it's Chef. It's fantastic. But, you know, of course, one of the Japanese 
the Japanese series. Right, right, of course. You know, They're the, the only series that really matters. Yeah. I, I used to love when I we agree. would export our people to Iron Chef every once in a while. Because I remember when, what, who was it? It was Bobby Flay. Yes. Got, stood on top of the cutting board. Oh, mom and, always talks about that. Yeah, and like how offended everyone was. Oh, they were so offended yeah. by it. So, and he won, I think, too. So, Kyle, where does Totoro mm. stand in the pantheon of Ghibli movies to you? I know Princess Mononoke is your favorite. I think it's mine, too. Yeah, I mean, I love Princess Mononoke. I don't know. I mean... Where do you put Spirited Away? I like Spirited Away. Me I would too. put it behind Mononoke. I'd probably put it ahead of this one, though. Okay. I think... I don't know, man. I mean, out of all the movies, all of the... This might be my least favorite, actually, out of the ones I've seen. I haven't seen them all. You know, I've seen, like, maybe a half dozen of them. I would even need to see a list to make sure that there aren't any more. Yeah. But when I think about the ones that, like, you know, Kiki's Delivery Service and uh, obviously Spirited Away and obviously Mononoke, what's the one Castle... No. Castle in the Sky. Laputa Castle in the Sky is the one that came right after Nausicaa. I don't know if you've ever seen that one. It's two kids it's and from like the, a, it's sort of a giant robot. Yeah, I think I, that's really like, early, right? He looks like, like a golem from Wild Arms. It's from the 80s. Yeah, uh, that was 86, Yeah, I think I have I seen think. that one. But yeah, I, I would I would say out of the ones at least I remember or have a cognizance of, I would put this one at the end of the list. Just okay. because, I, I don't know, I, I just, I guess in, in a way... Kiki's yeah. Delivery Service and Mononoke and some of these others don't really spirit. I mean, they all have better plots. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, Castle in the Sky was 86. Yeah. Nausicaa was 84, I think. And so, then Grave and Totoro were 88. So yeah, at least out of the ones that I would remember, I would definitely... Yeah. And actually, I've definitely seen Grave of the Fireflies, but I'm telling you, I saw that in a history class in college. So I, I don't know... I could see them showing that there. Yeah, definitely. I definitely saw that in a class. Absolutely. Um, no, that that it's a it's an important you know it's a it's a conversation sparker if nothing else right it ignites that like we had in the beginning of the show which was a really cool conversation to have I think it's a you know I think it's if you're being candid I think it's got to be part of the conversation when you're talking about this period for Ghibli because again Totoro and and Grave of the Fireflies were released on a double bill you know they yeah, did it so on purpose that's so fascinating totally very different movies different directors you know although contemporaries and famous friends and everything like that it would be cool to get one of the japanese like a reproduction obviously but of the japanese poster for the double bill that would be cool that would be very I'm cool. sure one exists that would be really neat yeah but, so that's you know and again we'll get more into studio ghibli there's a lot in the story behind you know it's very interesting how studio ghibli sort of came out of Topcraft and how Topcraft spun off into two different things, one of them being Studio Ghibli and how Disney got involved with the whole thing and how so it's very fascinating. We'll get into that. You know, we could talk more about that on future topics. We'll talk more about, you know, every time we'll talk more about not only, you know, Ghibli's sort of the way Ghibli evolved and the way it came to be, but also the you know, the stuff that Miyazaki's done in the past for Toei and APRO and Telecom and Nippon, you know, all the animation studios he he was involved with pre-Ghibli because he started Ghibli when he was a little bit older. So he had quite a past in Japanese animation even prior to Ghibli. So we'll talk about it. We'll cover all that. Yeah, stuff. I think we can probably revisit Ghibli at least a half dozen more times for the bigger movies oh, and Nino Kuni as well. So I think, yeah, I think it's much to say, much to discuss. I think that's really exciting. I think this was a good conversation. and I'm glad you liked him. And friend. I agree. I think that, you know, I could be wrong about this. Was Fo Did Fox have anything to do, 20th Century Fox have anything to do with the Akira localization in the late 80s as well? I think they did. I think I want to say that because they if did. that's true, then they had a, they had someone over there that had an eye for what was going on in the late 80s. Yes, Japan. which is which is really that's really um, something to point out because a lot of people didn't have their eye out there yet. You know what I mean? A lot of people didn't really realize how big anime would become. 
you know, and it became it became big pretty quickly. It did. But yeah, they were huge. certainly early adapters for sure. They were early adopters. I was reminded by how big anime is today, contemporaneous to when we're recording this, simply because uh, Crunchyroll recently upped their subscription price, and that caused like a mad. Oh, did they like, really? Yeah, I think so. so. Okay. People really love that, and you know, I dude, I'll never forget it. I you know, my own ignorance of anime and my own ignorance of how big these things will be. I'll never forget when I was at IGN. Around the time PS4 was coming out, Crunchyroll, which were right down the street from IGN's office and still are, I assume, they wanted to have a meeting with me because they were launching their Crunchyroll app on PlayStation 4. And I'm like, I don't know. I got, like, I would take almost any appointment because I was like, I don't know what I'm going to find. So that's fine. And I remember going out with them and being and immediately being like, oh, shit. Like, actually, no, that's not how it went at all. I was like, I took the meeting. I was like, all right. Like, they we went out to lunch. It was like their community manager and a few other people. And, okay. and, I, and I interviewed them and stuff. And then I wrote this piece. And I'm like, ah, whatever. And I wrote it and then it got like hundreds of thousands of views like oh, overnight. I and I was like, what this. the fuck? You know, I, and that was like what opened my eyes. That to, made you realize. Yeah, because I, you know, a decent performing article on IGN would do like 50,000 uniques, right? Yeah. A big piece would do hundreds of thousands. My Last of Us review did like two and a half million uniques, right? Wow. A story that wouldn't do anything would do like 9,000, 10,000, 12,000, 15,000. You knew that like no one cared. No about one this. cared. Yeah, yeah. And I think, yeah, that one hundreds of thousands. I was like, what wow. the f And I was so happy that I liked. So then I started taking cool. fucking, like then I really started amping up the appointments I was taking. And another early one I took was with Twitch and all that. So it was like, it ended up working out pretty well. That's you know? cool. That's cool. But yeah. it just goes to show you. What year was that? That was in like 2013, I think. It, it goes to show oh, wow. you that. I it might have even been on PS3, so it might have even been like 2012. Okay, but I remember just you know I'm just saying that because even people that are so-called experts, I, I'm an I'm uh, an expert in PlayStation and I'm an expert in in that area. I would put my expertise against anyone on those platforms, anybody. Right. Uh, but even those of us that are in the know or in the main, like you know, don't know everything. Oh no, you could you, you could always learn stuff. It's that's, really that's the joy of doing knock. That's one of the great joys of doing knockback for me because even these topics that we you know we know well and we want to talk about and we have you know we know well enough to discuss for a couple hours i'm always learning you know always learning stuff that's you know and that's just one of the joys of life right learning more about the things you love learning more in general i i take that as one of the joys of life a lot of people, i love it some well, honestly a lot of people some people definitely don't <laughs> uh dagan let's wrap up yes with our segments our closing segments before we do a dad joke dagan has a new segment i will allow him to explain it to you now please my friend okay so this this time guys we're doing actually i opened the wrong file hold on one second we're calling this segment do i know you or do i know you so basically what happens is i'm going to ask colin a pop culture question of some kind he's going to give his answer before he gives his answer, I am going to tell you guys what I think he's going to say. I'm trying to get I'm gonna to try to guess his answer. So he's gonna Colin's gonna put his noise canceling headphones on and not listen. And I'm gonna tell you guys what the question is and what I think he's going to say for an answer. Okay? Excellent. All right, Kyle, you ready? Yep, I'll put my headphones All right, on. Headphones now. are on. Headphones are secure. He's covering his headphones. Guys, the question I'm gonna ask Colin this time is his top choice right now for an NES Let's Play on YouTube, given the time, any game. So any NES game for a Let's Play on YouTube, what's the next one he would he would tackle given the time? And I had to think about this a little bit, but I think he's either going to say Super Mario 3 or Ninja Gaiden. And I'm gonna I'm gonna give myself because I'm because I'm over I'm oh for three so far. I'm gonna give myself both choices. I think he's gonna say Ninja Gaiden or Super Mario 3. Okay, Kyle, you can take your headphones off. Okay. 
I really want to get this one right. All right, you're 0 for 3 so far. So. I'm 0 for 3, and yeah. I was just telling the reminding the audience of that shameful statistic. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give myself two possible answers. Oh, okay, you're going to cheat a little bit. Okay, It's my game, and yeah. I get to cheat if I want to. You make to. the rules up. So, Kyle, for this do I know you or do I know you, I'm going to ask you, what is your top choice right now? What would be your top choice for an NES Let's Play? On YouTube, given the time, what game would you want to do next for an, for an NES Let's Play on YouTube, given the time? Time is not an issue. So I can like like the production time is what you're saying. Yeah, I okay. mean, yeah, you have the time to do it. You have the time to play the game, edit it if you want to, whatever. The, the next game of your choice, what do you think would be a really good one that people would enjoy and that you would enjoy doing? The Legend of Zelda. Oh, man. Even cheating, I didn't get it right. But what did you? I do? said Super Mario Three. That's a good one. I, I did one for that in December. And Ninja Gaiden. I did that one for one in December as well. Oh, you did Ninja Gaiden? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. I did, I forgot you did Super Mario Three. I should have known. I that. think I did the Let's Plays for both of them and played until I died or something like that. I think. That oh was man! So I was right. No, you absolutely. I mean, you had an uncanny ability to know what I already did. Oh, I didn't know you, you did. We Ninja don't know Gaiden. If you, how far did you get in Ninja Gaiden? Did you get? Did you play it for a long time? Yeah, I think a while. I got probably to like, you know, that's that like ter- under ter- underground stage where the nin- the green ninjas appear. Yeah. Like yeah, yeah, so yeah. I think I got there before I died. Or something. OK. All right. So it's, that's respectable. And you send it there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was just trying to see how far I can get. I'm going to do one Jesus. for the messenger soon where I'm going to do that as well. That game looks cool because there's actually a trophy for getting a certain amount in without. I've already gotten it because I planned them. But Jesus, it's, it's, it, I didn't even know you played that Ninja Gaiden. Yeah, yeah, it came, went out in December. I did like a Mario, Super Mario World, Mario 3, and Ninja Gaiden, and then I just preloaded them because I was basically gone for a lot of December. <laughs> well, well, Zelda was going to be my third choice. Well, I, I think it would be, I think I've told you in the past that I think it would be really fun to do a Legend of Zelda Let's Play using my own walkthrough for the yes, game. Yes, that would be cool. So that's kind of what I would, you know, without any, that's such a long playthrough and that would require so much editing. Yeah. That I just haven't done just it. Just don't edit it. I edit my Let's Plays only for sound. Okay. So I like, uh, like I'll enhance the sound of the game or lower the game sound oh, based on okay. if I'm talking or not. Whether you're talking at that moment. Otherwise, I don't know that I edit much content out. I think I edited a little bit out of our Bloodborne Let's Play. People were so mad at our Chris's and my Bloodborne Let's Play. It was so funny to me. Why? Not everyone. I mean, a lot of people liked it, but because it was basically just us making a character and that's it. Oh, okay. And then we called it a Let's Play. But I was like, you have to know what you're going to get out of us. We made a horrifying character who we named Kremit. <laughs> <laughs> and I love character creators because you saw my Division Two character. Who's I did. Horrifying. I, did I love character creators because I love making my characters horrifying. That's as hilarious. Like how horrifying will they let me actually let me make? Right. This how far can I push this? And I, you couldn't push it very far in the division. Like okay. he, I made his eyes really close together, yeah, and his yeah. nose huge and stuff. But he wasn't as he was not nearly as horrific. He as looked I hoped. believable. Yeah, he looked like he was missing it's a, a chromosome. Yeah, he might have maybe came out the womb five months, you know, too soon or something like that, which is really premature. It's hilarious, as you know. Well, they, well you know what? Yeah. I I would you know I would say mm-hmm. do the Legend of Zelda Let's Play. Let's do it. You have a lot of old fans; they would enjoy that. I'm sitting on a few of our Let's Plays too. I still haven't published. Oh, you know, we, we did a we couple have, other ones. I mean, we have some that we can't use, but because Dagan was so bad at the game. But we have uh, which one was that? Super Mario, Mario 2 and Life Force. Or I have Salamander. to be able to complete both of those games on one guy. Yeah. So Dagan, if like, I can't do that, I'm not sure. Dagan was getting so mad at himself at Life or at Salamander. No, we were playing Life Force. The same game, but you were playing Life Force. Yeah, I guess. yeah, yeah. 
And uh, no, no, you were playing Salamander. You were playing the Salamander version. Yeah. And so, yeah, Dingo was getting so increasingly oh, mad at him. So we kept introducing the Let's Play and like, doing it, it over and over. Like, oh, forget it. It was too much pressure. I may, we may eventually do that. I may eventually want to do that, some Let's Plays and stuff like that. You can that. also do it by yourself, right? And yeah. the, uh, we'll get you a, an Elgato or whatever. Elgato. Elgato. But the one that I'm sitting on that's perfectly usable is Final Fantasy IV. I've still not published that one. We have okay. a perfectly usable Final and Fantasy IV. And you have Simon's Quest, don't forget. Oh, I and Simon's. forgetting about that. Right. We have Simon's Quest as well, Simon's yeah. Testicle. There was something wrong with that one. No. no, there was. I didn't record the game audio, Oh, which wouldn't have been a big deal because I was like, I guess I could edit music over it, but that's going to be so fucking But the music's annoying. so good. I know. So I think I, we have to do it again. But the the ideal for us, Dagan, for us to do our Let's Plays is for us to gather when we don't have to do these. Yeah. And when we can, I can hire or have a producer around to just do everything and we just sit down and. Yeah. Play and enjoy doing And it. then they can take the day. We'll have. Du Actually, we could do it at your house because Dustin kind of lives in your area. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, he lives he in that? eastern Pennsylvania. He can get to us pretty easily. So he does. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. I won't say the town name because I. Well, no, I, I think I think it's fine. It's Butler because Butler, Pennsylvania. Because I don't know where that is. I think I think that's near Phil. I think that's in eastern Pennsylvania. It might be in western Pennsylvania. Big difference. Can't be more than six hours away. But the point I was making was that you know, I know that because I met Dustin. Well, I've met Dustin before, but he, his friend was a guest on Fireside Chats who was the mayor of Butler, Pennsylvania. Was, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Which I thought was an awesome conversation. Wow, I didn't know. I didn't know. I wanted to talk to a small town mayor about what it's like to run and like what the small town politics are like. It was, yeah, great. Yeah, it was yeah. a great episode, in my opinion. If I do say so myself. Maybe you'll head back to Long Island someday and be a mayor of a town. I would. I want to be town supervisor of Suffolk County. Which town would you choose? Well, actually, they're county supervisors, right? So only Suffolk oh, and that's right, right, right. Both or county township. supervisors on Long Island mm. are for Long Island secession, which is my favorite. They fact. both are. Yeah, my favorite fact. Do they want to succeed from each other as well? Uh, I hope not. No, I no, think they, they have to stick. No, together. they want to stick together. Yeah, yeah no, I wouldn't to, want to not to stuff. leave the U.S., but to become its own state, which yeah, I, yes, I would love that. Yes. If Brooklyn and Queens are the complication. So, yeah. Otherwise, I think we would have been our own well state said, a long time ago. Friend. Well said. Digging. Let's end with a dad joke. Dad joke. All right. Let's do it. Carl. Puns about communism aren't funny unless everybody gets them. Uh, I like that one. You like that yeah, one? That's a good one. I lost another audio book and now I'll never hear the end of it. <laughs> That's pretty. Those are pretty bad, but I like the communism. Pretty one. bad. Anything that shits on communism is a okay. With I me. still have my racy one that I told you a little bit about. I didn't tell you what it was, but I told you a little bit about it yesterday. But I can't read it yet. No, well, and I can always read it too because I have no shame, and I don't care what anyone thinks about what I say. <laughs> so that that's the major difference between you and I, I suppose. Digging. So that's where we end it, my friend. That's where we end my neighbor Totoro. I would say, you know, usually I tell you guys how you can find these products if we are talking about a game or a movie. The unfortunate reality is you're not going to find My Neighbor Totoro on fucking anything. No, Disney I, is making sure you can't see it right now. So you, it's in the Disney vault. Unless you want to borrow my DVD. Yeah, that's what I had to do. I literally Swing have Dagan bring his DVD with him to, for me to watch it. So you could buy it on Blu-ray or DVD, I'm sure. But if you want to download it like a normal fucking person in 2019 on a digital platform, good luck because you're not going to find it. Anymore. I'll sell it to you for a hundred bucks. Hundred dollars. Hundred bucks. Dagan will trade you that for uh, the IG88 12-inch figure that we talked about on our. Oh yes, yeah. so if you have the IG88 12-inch figure, I'll give you my neighbor Totoro. <laughs> the, the very common my neighbor. Totoro I don't even DVD. need the bandolier or anything. No accessories. Just give me the fig. He give me the want, fig. Why? Be honest. Why do you want that IG? That it's IG. Cool. Let me, so, let me ask you I this. I want to feel it. I want to feel if it's heavy. Oh, I'm sure you do want to feel I it. I do. And let, me, and let me ask you this. <laughs> was that IG-88, just based on IG-88's shape, IG-88, was he ever used as a sex toy by anyone in the oh. 80s? Oh. The answer, of course, is yes. I think Someone used IG-88 as a sex toy. I think if he didn't have those two little points on his head, but he's... Some people like that. I guess so. Some people like the... Tickler? 
yeah, you oh, tickle the grundle on. while you, you you know put it in either. Well, never mind. <laughs> no. I'm not even gonna go with it. Oh no! You know what? Never mind. Never mind. Forget I said anything. Forget you already went. To, what? Well, I was, gonna say, I was gonna say you could tickle the grundle putting it in either hole <laughs> oh with the God. with the hands, you know, including the pee hole. You can even have a little. What are you doing to my show? I don't. <laughs> You save this stuff for sacred symbols. I know. I know. Sacred symbols is really perverse. And then we're wondering why we're not on the iTunes top 100 anymore. Because someone probably listened to it. was like, we can't possibly be promoting this show. Talk about killing babies and shit. It's horrible. It's a horrible show. Dagan, I'm sorry I ruined this episode, but it's all right. We did. We. I think it's still okay. My neighbor Totoro, go check it out. Dagan, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Uh, thank you all out there for supporting us here on Knockback. Remember to support the show on patreon.com slash Stand. If you can, if you listen on free feeds, leave us nice reviews. Tell friends and family about the might, the majesty, and the wonder of Collins Last Stand and of Knockback. We'll see you next time for more. Goodbye. Bye, guys. Knockback is a product of and a registered trademark of Collins Last Stand LLC and is recorded in Santa Monica, California and the Philadelphia suburbs of Pennsylvania, USA. The show is produced by me, Colin Moriarty, and was conceived of by myself and Dagan Moriarty, who is also my co-host. You can find me on Twitter at NoTaxation and on Instagram at CLS Moriarty. Dagan is on Twitter at Dagan1973 and on Instagram at DaganLikesToDraw. Knockback is edited by Dustin Furman. Any snail mail can be sent to our P.O. Box, P.O. Box 1233, Santa Monica, California, 90406. As you know, all things Collins Last Stand, including Knockback, are fan-funded on Patreon at patreon.com slash Stand. The following names are at the producer level or higher on Patreon, and we are eternally grateful for your kindness, generosity, and fandom. Carlos Algaret, C.J. Anderson, Morgan Ashley, Taylor Barkley, Sean Battershaw, Martin Beck, Michael Betts, Eric Bishop, Mark Boggio, Eli Bosford, Barrett Boswell, Miguel Brewer, Lennon Brixie, Josh Bushing, Austin Bullock, Andrew Burkhart, Dylan Burns, Chris Buston, Alex Cabrera, Brian Cacciatolo, Tom Cargill, Patrick Carper, William O'Carroll, Ryan Caulfield, Brian Chan, Travis Chandler, Sean Chandler, David Chestnut, Simon Conception Jr., Brad Cooley, Geo Corsi, Nick Cummings, Daniel Diamore, Colin Davenport, Daniel Delanicos, Mitchell Durkash, Knight Draft, David Ellis, Martha Emery, Joe Finale, Eric Finkenbeiner, Candler Four, Fodios Frangos, Michael Gallier, Chris Galvin, Connor Gashian, Alex Gates, Michael Gates, Salem Ghanem El Ghanem, Daniel Glassford, Tyler Goodwin, Josh Gravelick, Miranda Grubba, Tyler Harris, Kyle Hagel, Wyatt Henry, Asa Haas, Azan Isa El Ricey, Josh Yeager, John Jameson, Joshua Jonathan, Greg Julius, Anton K, Jeremy Key, Anti Kinnanen, James Kinzel the Third, Ryan R. Kittredge, Jackson Lastiqua, Joe Lawson, Don Q. Lee, Patrick Leslie, Dustin Lewis, Keith Adrian Lewis, Chad Lewis, Lou and Ray Loper, Elijah Lopez, Colin Love, Josh M, Ryan. T. Mandel, Peter Mark, Michael Martinez, Sean Mason, Zachariah McAdoo, John McCarthy, Joe McPartland, Dennis Meinchin, Andrew Mendoza, Christopher Middling, Albert Miranda, Betty Ann Moriarty, Abe Mukhtar, Ryan Murdoch, Brian Nietzsche, Adam Nix, Donnie Nolan, George Anthony Nunez, Brian Ott, Jorge Palomino, David Parkhurst, Todd Paxton, Brendan Peavy, Marius S. Peterson, Enrique Perez, Nicholas Perfect, James Perone, Jason Pettit, Jeff Pollard, Louis Powell, Lawrence F. Prokop, Ryan Reeves, Michael Renner, Peter Reynolds, Shane Rayum, Jonathan Rice, Mark Richardson, Tony D. Riemenschneider, Austin Riley, Petro Rose, A.G. Rowe, John Schultz, Michael Shanholtz, Brandon Sharkey, Toby Schutman, Glendon Cole Simper, Joshua Smallwood, Andrew Smith, Daniel Strycharsk, John Tambanillo, Ahmad Tamar, Joseph Thayer, Ben Thompson, Carl Tolman, Alan Tremblay, Jacob Turnbaugh, Phil Van Ralt, Raymond Vargas, Michael Vecchio, Oakley Waldron, Justin Wagaman, Isaac Wastman, Damon Weathers, Mike Wayant, Corey Wyatt, Tony Zuniga, Toothless Gibbon, Casual Misfits Gaming, Supershot ST, Homeworld Hub, Throw7, Infinite, Mad Mock Media, Fabian, Mubarak, Richter86, Hugo's Desk, Andrew, Ian, Chris, Donk 2015 and Gavin.